All those who are holding tickets outside will get in as fast as they can. I'm speaking not to you, ladies and gentlemen. I'm speaking to the crowd on the outside who seem to be standing rather reluctant to come in, and we're going to start this very soon. Welcome back to Worthy. My name is John. And I'm Ben. And today on the 42nd episode of Worthy, we are discussing the X-rated film Midnight Cowboy. Yeehaw. At least it was X-rated. Yeehaw! At least it was X-rated in 1969 when the film came out and later won Best Picture in 1970. So, the last time we really talked about film rating was all the way back, way back what happened one night, where we kind of talked about the Hayes Code and how this kind of affected, changed film overall and how it changed the rating system and how it changed really how to make films, limitations on films. And before that, cinema had kind of been very open and free. There weren't that many rules, restrictions. You could allowed a lot of filmmakers to make a lot of films that wouldn't have been made after the early 30s. And now here we are, 1969. There's a new generation of Hollywood coming in, kind of fighting their way to the front line. And we have a film like Midnight Cowboy, a film that kind of dives into sexuality, dives into prostitution, and it shows a lot of nudity, a lot of nudity that we're really not used to seeing at all in Best Picture winners. Really, across the board, there's not much nudity across all of our, our Best Picture winners. So right off the top, since this is an X-rated film and really our only X-rated film that would ever win Best Picture, I wanted to mention a couple X-rated films that maybe we've seen or just some really popular ones that kind of come to mind. Things like the original e- Evil Dead from 1981 was originally X-rated due to the violence, the blood, the gore. Really what makes that movie great. And then you have Clockwork Orange, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, Y2, Mama Tambien, Shame, and then Love 3D. So all of these, I believe I've seen. Ben, you've seen a couple of these. But it's interesting with when it comes to X-rated films because it's usually about nudity. And specifically male, I'll just call them bottoms, male and female bottoms. You know, when you kind of cross the line by showing things like, for instance, you know, sexual assault, like in A Clockwork Orange, or just the sexualization of younger men or older women in like Y2 Mama Tambien, and something like Shame, which is just about sex addiction and, and a sex addict. What's really interesting when it comes to X-rated films is that they never cross that line. They never cross over and become something that is kind of deemed worthy by the Academy. So first, I kind of want to jump off the top and tell me, Ben, specifically some of your interactions with X-rated films, whether like growing up you had issues watching maybe even R-rated films or like what was the first instance that you kind of ran into what is known as an X-rated film? Yeah, so I didn't have too much experience with x-rated movies uh a clockwork orange is the one that sticks out the most honestly probably up to midnight cowboy and i think that's just because the nature of my movie watching experiences how little x-rated movies are in terms like how relevant they are there's not that many that are like oh you should watch this x-rated movie and maybe it is because that stigmatism against it but I think that what you just asked though about R-rated movies was like very much a part of my childhood. I remember when I was 17, you had to be to go to an R-rated movie on my own. I remember going to my first R-rated movie on my own, like how big of a deal that was for me. And then even just as a kid, like getting to watch R-rated movies. And I kind of just realized that they're just a couple of, you know, a couple of naked women in it saying some curse words. It's really the only difference uh, in terms of rating. So it's like, 
it's kind of like a weird thing for me where it's like X rated is kind of just like a very extreme R rating because I feel like maybe society was not accepting of, of really much. So it's like, okay, we have to like really hammer this all down. But I think when you put something even as X rated, you it, it, it seems like more attractive. Like you see like NC-17 ratings today. You're almost like, ooh, like I really want to watch that. They must go to like really big extremes. Yeah. And usually... The extremes aren't that much. Maybe it's just because they show a penis. And like that's the yeah. why well, it's an NC-17 thing. We can show tons of naked women, but as soon as it's a penis, it's like, nope, nope, can't have that. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that because I think of, especially for us in our age growing up with like really the peak and ending of film comedy, when especially when it comes to theaters, like huge directors like Judd Apatow who would make these really big movies they would do really well, usually be R-rated, and then you would have a DVD that would say an X-rated version. And I remember going to Blockbuster as a kid, and I'd be like, oh, my God, like, I've seen that movie on cable. Like, I need to see what the X-rated stuff is. You know, like, as, like, an immature boy, you're just like, oh, my God, there's more naked women. Like, yeah. there's more blood. There's more gore. Like, I need to watch this. And almost, like, now has become a way to sell something. You know, we have, like an uncensored or x-rated version on this film or disc or whatever it may be it's like a marketing tactic to kind of get people interested but back then it was almost a, a death sentence to kind of put on a film and you can kind of look at it in two ways i think it's either sexuality or violence and i feel like the violence aspect you don't really see that often when it comes to x-rated films it's usually sexual related and i think just as americans we're always kind of scared of showing too much in terms of sexuality and whether that's like affecting our kid, our children, the youth, whatever it may be, I think especially of a film, if you're from Florida. Yeah, yeah, I think of a film like Love, which I saw, which was actually titled Love 3D. When I saw it, I was like doing a semester in London, and I went to go see this movie, and it was really just about a relationship, and it would show completely open like sex scenes, like completely not edited. This was like the two actors physically actually being intimate with each other. And that was an experience that I'll definitely never forget. It was 3D wearing 3D glasses to see that three almost three-hour movie. It's insane. And it's like specialized movies like that. Like there's no other rating for them. It's essentially a mix between, you know, nonfiction filmmaking and porn. And where does that even lie? Like what's the market for that? I think it's so small. And I can't even remember the last film that was even X-rated that had been released publicly and that is something that people like, you need to go see this, like you need to flock out and go see. So really, in, overall, to sum it up, I just think maybe we d needed to retake a look at our rating system now and in, in 2023. And maybe we should be expanding things. And maybe something like you could look back at like, Evil Dead, really, does it deserve an X rating? You know, And I think ratings change over time. And that's what makes the whole ideology of a rating system kind of interesting. Because if you're willing to change something without changing a single edit or anything like that but you're willing to change the rating what really is a film rating right like wh where does it and who makes that decision it's quite anonymous right in terms of the right. mpaa kind of making these ratings and kind of going about their business behind the scenes it's not very public so i mean it really comes down who's to say whether a film should be rated or not and it's only the mpaa yeah you're absolutely right and you know i just want to go back to when you were like oh the the x-rated versions i remember it being unrated like i remember an old school dvd box like the, yep. the movie old school and i remember the unrated yep. version i was like oh the unrated version <laughs> so i definitely Which had is that so funny because like yeah. what does that mean you don't it need just, to have a rating yeah. to release something on a disc like you show your you rating don't. on the back but it has nothing to do with your disc now 
Yeah. No, it. I. You're absolutely right. Where it's just like that. It doesn't even matter because it's on a disc and anyone can view it. Like, I know like YouTube has its censorship stuff, but like other like streaming platforms that kids can have access to, there's really nothing like holding you back. There's like no censorship. So in terms of like ratings changing, like Midnight Cowboy changed. I think they did go back and retroactively change it. Changed it from the X rating to an R rating and it just it's it's so fluid at this point like it doesn't really even matter what it's rated like you can look at like everything everywhere all at once and it's like but should that have been an R rated movie like back in 1999 probably that would have been an R rated movie but today <laughs> it's it's almost like PG it's so like harmless and I, I you know even the Marvel movies the Marvel movies I, I, what are the what are the ratings for those movies I'm a, I guess they're always PG-13 but they're for little kids yeah. at the end of the day. So it's like, you know, like Ant-Man. Ant-Man's supposed to be for little kids, but there's like death and destruction everywhere in that movie. It, it's it's very silly. Censorship is a very silly thing to me. Like I was not raised with any censorship, which is why I watched what I did watch, which maybe wasn't the best for a little kid to watch. <laughs> but that will all be relevant to our conversation about this movie. There's a specific thing I, w- I really want to talk about. With that, so John, why don't we just get into it and let me just pose this question to you: Is Midnight Cowboy worthy of the Best Picture Award of 1969? Midnight Cowboy, a naive hustler, travels from Texas to New York City to seek personal fortune finding a new friend in the process. Young Texan dishwasher Joe Buck quits his job and heads by bus to New York City in cowboy attire to become a male prostitute. Initially unsuccessful, he finally beds a middle-aged woman, Cass, in her Park Avenue apartment. She is insulted when he requests payment, and he ultimately gives her money, implying she is a high-class prostitute herself. Joe meets Rico Ratso Rizzo, a con man with a limp who takes $20 for introducing him to a pimp. After discovering that the alleged pimp is actually an unhinged religious fanatic, Joe flees unsuccessfully in pursuit of Rico. Joe spends his days wandering the city, listening to his Zenith portable radio and sitting in his hotel room. Soon broke, management locks him out and impounds his belongings. Joe tries to make money by receiving oral sex from a young man in a movie theater but the man cannot pay. Joe threatens him, but releases him unharmed. The next day, Joe spots Rico and angrily confronts him. When Rico offers to share his apartment squat in a condemned building, Joe reluctantly accepts and they begin a business relationship as hustlers. Rico asks Joe to refer to him as Rico instead of Ratso, but Joe does not oblige. They struggle with severe poverty, stealing food while failing to get Joe work, and Joe pawns his radio. Rico's health steadily worsens during winter without heat. In intermittent flashbacks, Joe's grandmother raises him after his mother abandons him. He has a tragic relationship with Annie, disclosed through flashbacks in which they are attacked and raped by a cowboy gang in a parked car. Annie says, he's the one, he's the only one, as she is escorted into an ambulance. Rico tells Joe his father was an illiterate Italian immigrant shoeshiner whose job yielded a bad back and lung damage from shoe polish exposure. Rico learned shoeshining from his father but considers it degrading and generally refuses to do it. When he breaks into a stand and shines Joe's cowboy boots to attract clients, two police officers arrive and sit with their dirty boots next to Joe's. 
Rico dreams of moving to Miami, shown in fantasies in which he and Joe frolic on a beach and are pampered at a resort, including a boy polishing Rico's boots. A Warhol-like filmmaker and an extrovert female artist approach Joe in a diner, taking his Polaroid photograph and inviting him to a Warhol-esque art event. Joe and Rico attend, but Rico's poor health and hygiene attract unwanted attention. After mistaking a joint for a cigarette and receiving uppers, Joe starts to hallucinate. He leaves with Shirley, a socialite who pays him $20 for spending the night, but Joe cannot perform sexually. They play scrimmage, and the resulting wordplay leads Shirley to suggest that Joe may be gay. Suddenly, he is able to perform. The next morning, she sets up her female friend as Joe's next client, and his career appears to be progressing. When Joe returns home, Rico is bedridden and feverish. He refuses medical help and begs Joe to put him on a bus to Florida. Desperate, Joe attempts to get money by calling Shirley and then picking up a man in an arcade. He robs the man during a violent encounter in the man's hotel room, brutally beating and apparently smothering him. Joe buys two bus tickets to Florida with the stolen money. Rico again tells Joe that he wants to be called Rico, not Ratso, and Joe begins to oblige. During the trip, Rico's health deteriorates further as he becomes incontinent and sweat-drenched. At a rest stop, Joe buys new clothing for Rico and himself and discards his cowboy outfit. On the bus, Joe amuses that there must be easier careers than hustling and tells Rico he will get a regular job in Florida. When Rico does not respond, Joe realizes he has died. The driver asks Joe to close Rico's eyelids, saying there is nothing they can do but continue to Miami. The bus riders stare. Teary-eyed Joe sits with his arm around his friend. Midnight Cowboy was directed by John Schlesinger. Written by Waldo Salt, based on the novel by James Leo Hurley. Produced by Jerome Hellman, with associate production by Kenneth Utt. Music by John Barry. Cinematography by Adam Hollander. Film editing by Hugh A. Robertson. Casting by Marion Darty. Production design by John Robert Lloyd. And costume design by Anne Roth. Midnight Cowboys star Dustin Hoffman as Ratso. John Voigt as Joe Buck. Sylvia Miles as Cass. John McGiver as Mr. O'Daniel. Brenda Vaccaro as Shirley. And Bernard Hughes as Townie. All right, John. Midnight Cowboy. This is a movie I've been very excited to talk about uh, for on the podcast. Since I watched this movie, I was like, I cannot wait to talk about this movie. Um, <laughs> so uh, it there's a lot like I would love to say, and I don't want to, you know, all the time. But this opening sequence, like, just gotta start right there, right from the beginning, because I think this sets up a lot of the tone and the things that are getting talked about and this like counterculture in, in filmmaking, this new, true new wave approach to filmmaking that I know we've been talking about, Oh, there's a separation. There's a separation coming between, you know, the grandparents, Hollywood, our parents, Hollywood, like what they were watching. But this is like truly like a true, like big split because like compared to the year before we had Oliver, which I, I think it's somewhere in our notes where it was a G-rated movie and now this is an X-rated. We'll just call it, we'll call this extreme R-rated movie for right now. Just because really there's nothing X-rated about this movie. It's fairly tame, I will say. It's just the subject matter 
1969 was like, whoa, as a movie, this is insane. So I want to start with the opening. And it's the the opening shot, which is a very tight zoom in on a on a drive-in uh, screen. No movies being played. It's during the day. It's a white screen, and you hear uh, hear guns going off. It sounds like a cowboy movie is going on. It's just a zoom out to the drive-in. It's empty because it's a little boy on a uh, on like a, a horse that you would ride at a playground. It's like just going back and forth, galloping away, playing cowboys, uh, and it's it seems very just like America, Americana, very simple Texas. And then the next shot is of. John Voight's feet playing. He's playing Joe Buck, and the soap drops. So, so first, I think like just from those that that edit that shot, there's a few things you take away from it. It's the first thing, which is the blank canvas. There's we're all born with blank canvases in life. There's uh, was it Thoreau? Is that right? That's his theory about the blank canvas. Is that when you're born into this world, you're a blank canvas, and you're get shaped and molded into who you are. Fine. What then is what you're hearing also is the cowboy movie. So the blank canvas, the first things you're hearing and experiencing are these cowboys, man movies, very adventurous. I'm as sure as a kid and, and me as a kid as well, very impressionable. A lot of adventure movies were being shown. It feels very fantastical. Like, of course, kids would be very attracted to the fantastical elements of the world. Movies being the probably the biggest source of that. And then again, as you're zooming out, you're seeing no one's watching. Uh, even though the song is playing is everybody's watching, but nobody's watching the Cowboys movie anymore. It, so that's like a Hollywood change. The little boy is still there trying to pretend he's a cowboy, but then it cuts to that soap dropping and Joe Buck. I mentioned the soap dropping because, and I'm, I don't know if this is a joke for you growing up. It, it's a very insensitive joke and uh, that was made when we were kids, which was, oh, don't drop like the soap in the shower because it, would imply that you would, ha- as a boy, you'd bend over and some boy would want to fuck you. Is essentially the the gist of that joke. It's a very crude joke, um, but it's I think it still is relevant or used today. I'm sure by younger generations and kids. I don't know what you're experiencing and that joke is, but it was definitely very prevalent in my high school. Not sure why. It's just like that. Like that joke was there. So seeing that, you're like, oh, okay. There's like a homosexual reference right there. So immediately just those two shots and I'm literally focused on literally the first two seconds of the movie. It's like we are being told death to the cowboy movie, uh, how cowboy movies are, are there and influencing us to a homosexual act or at least an act that is depicted as homosexual and gay. So there's this weird dichotomy that's like being built up with just the first two shots in the first edit of the movie um, with that. And so then the, the rest of the sequence plays out. And it's Joe Buck showering. He's getting ready. He's inspecting his body. He's very, it's just showing off his body. This like very manly guy trying, you know, being the cowboy that he is. He's Joe Buck. You know, I'm Joe Buck. And you know, I want to say I'm Joe Buck. I don't give a fuck. I'm a cowboy type of thing. Uh, was Where's it Kill Joe Bill? Buck? You know, Kill was it Kill Bill where it's like, I'm Buck and I like to fuck. It's like this very, just like manly <laughs> guy thing. And it, it's a very, it's, supposed to be spoofing on it it's supposed to be like look, look how ridiculous this this is it's about and you know it unfolds and joe you realize this character who doesn't really fit in how many of the other people that in his this little texas town are dressed like him like a cowboy 
did you notice anybody was dressed like a cowboy in that town? Maybe there's a hat, but not like what he's dressed as. Am I right? No, he's definitely like old school cowboy, even for the late 60s now at this point. And yeah, I mean, this film is just drastically different than any film that we've even seen any of the best pictures previously. I mean, I don't think there's another film that tries to go in depth into a character and not only just a character study, but specifically try to take you as the viewer into this character's head. And I think just from initially the first two shots, yes, there's suggested uh, homosexual homosexuality by dropping the soap, by implying, and yeah, I definitely had that. There's definitely a boy thing growing up. I mean, you're always making like jail jokes and being immature, very immature. And I definitely knew immediately when there's like something interesting about that. There's no reference or acknowledgement to it. But even with the opening shot, it's interesting hearing you describe it because it sounds very much more so as like the viewer's interpretation, but I really took that as Joe's interpretation, whether that is Joe himself sitting on that that uh, little like rocking horse says there's no movie playing and he's imagining that movie kind of in his head or it's like a physical kind of like personification of like how Joe kind of feels now. Like he's still like this little boy trying to like put on this like man armor in a way. So, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, just from the very jump of it, you can really interpret it and change the film just based on even the two of us interpreting different things from the opening. Yeah, and for me, like, and this is a whole motif, I think, through probably most of the movie, maybe halfway through the movie, is Joe being very impressionable. I'd say Joe's oblivious to most of the stuff. Joe's very oblivious and impressionable. The media... If, if he was around today, he would definitely be a QAnon person. Let, let's just go with that. Like that, <laughs> like that, that's just the type of person. And, and I don't, I don't know if it's like because of his upbringing, where he was, just some people are just born dumb. And I, you know, I don't want to, it's like as like basic as I can say it without being too mean slow. about it. The Southerners slow. would say you're slow. <laughs> yeah, you're slow. I, I don't know if Joe, if his character is supposed to be, on the spectrum a little bit and I, I don't know I don't know if like that how intentional that was or if that's just the like oblivious nature that I'm getting from it because there's like no social cues at all with Joe and his character um, but the the reason why I bring up the whole like blank canvas thing the Cowboys movie dying is that he really holds on to that and there's a specific scene in, in line uh, that I think we'll get to but just in terms of chronological order of the movie um, he is very much influenced by the media. I mean, he's carrying around a radio listening to it. So, you know, what happens next is he's going to New York. He's honestly kind of like maybe the opposite of what I would expect sometimes of like somebody who's like trying to make it. You would think like, oh, I'm the New Yorker, but I want to try and make it on my own in like the big country. And like that being another like storyline motif. But he's like, no, I'm leaving the small country, going to make it big in the city with sex. And it's like, okay, very, <laughs> very interesting. And And what becomes interesting is like, his confidence he thinks that he's hot shit he thinks that he is from that small town he probably was like the hot shit good looking guy but when you start leaving that world of yours leaving that small bubble everybody else is hot shit everybody else looks good john you're hot and beautiful i'm hot maybe not beautiful but like that's just like the impression that he thinks of himself he's sitting on this bus he thinks that he's so cool you know chewing his gum there's a lot of I actually did read something about the the oral fixation of a lot of these characters and even that being a homosexual reference uh, with many of the things, you know, like Ratso 
having a cigarette always in his mouth, and he's always chewing on something. Joe's always chewing on gum. Regardless, uh, Joe's listening to the radio. He's getting the con- you know, getting the feel for the country vibes. He's trying to connect with people. People don't really want to connect with him. And then when, you know, as he's approaching New York, he starts to pick up the New York radio station. And this is something that like I didn't even pick up on until like the second or third time watching is as he's approaching the city, it, it this is definitely like in his own head. Uh, he's definitely like in his own head a lot of the movie. And what he's hearing are these women describe the perfect man. They're talking about Gary Cooper. Like Gary Cooper is the first name that gets pop that gets uh, brought up. So we have a, a high noon cowboy reference right there. You know, which is also another Sopranos reference. I know you know talking about it's like why can't men just be like Gary Cooper, the strong silent type? <laughs> you know, so why can't these men just be like Gary Cooper? And they start listing these things. They're like rebellious, young, good looking, likes to talk in bed, and as like. Joe's hearing all this. He's like, uh-huh, uh-huh. They're talking about me, uh-huh. And then they finally, the last woman goes, you, as like the perfect man. He just goes, yee-haw. Like, he could, so <laughs> excited, so giddy. He's like, I'm getting to New York. I'm going to do all these great things. And then what? His whole life is like, his whole life before this, we can piece together, wasn't so great and kind of shattered. But this is where his life, all of a sudden, oh, you want to become part of the big city? All right, country boy, this is what the big city is like. It's fascinating even when he's leaving and describing what he's doing and how it's all related to sex. And it's there's easy women and there's a lot of men that are fruity tooty is the way he describes it, I think. (laughs) And immediately right there. And I think this also comes from the way you're kind of describing him is I don't think he's like on the spectrum. I just think his character that he's kind of putting on, not Joe as a character, but like his own personal character that he kind of puts on this like macho bravado man it breaks a lot of the times. And I think there's a lot of points in this movie where he's really defensive and it shows how not only immature he is, but he's so self-conscious. He's so self-conscious that someone's going to find out like who he really is. I think that opens like such a big question of who Joe is and whether us as the viewers are really supposed to know exactly who Joe is and whether I think you even described in some of your notes here, like whether some of these flashbacks are even real or not, or whether they're entirely true. Like, are we getting, the real true flashback of what actually happened? Or are we getting like interpretations of how Joe sees it and looks back on it and how maybe that's changed over time. And that's what I think makes sometimes art really, really engaging and fascinating is that you can kind of have these kinds of conversations and kind of pick things apart and be like, well, I think that it is true. Like that's exactly what happened to him. And, you know, he was assaulted along with his girlfriend at the time. So It's interesting, and I think it kind of helps us paint our own picture of who Joe is, and maybe as a viewer, we can all individually have our own view of Joe. But yeah, I mean, it's such an amazing introduction to the film. It introduces us not only to the South that he's leaving, but also, you know, introducing us to this bus. And it's interesting how long we even stay on this bus ride and getting to know certain people. And I think that's also where a lot of the magic comes from this movie is the casting and the look of these people they're so unique like this automatically doesn't feel like our typical hollywood movie it, it's like we're seeing these weird oddball characters older women that are on the bus like a bunch of weird characters that i feel like is so non-typical from what you see in these big hollywood productions you know even when you look at like something like oliver which was our last movie like everyone just looked like 
you know, a well put together actor with like a little kind of dirt rubbed on their face, you know, like there wasn't these weird oddball characters that were just casted because they were unique. They were like unique looking New Yorkers that really just kind of stood out visually before they even said a line. And I think I even read like a funny little note about the bus driver being someone on the actual production which I thought was like a funny little tidbit where like an extra couldn't make it that day and the bus driver ended up being someone on the set. I, I think it was someone directly involved with uh, the production, I believe. But it shows just how willing and open they are to make a film like this. And I think it's why the film feels so grounded. It feels so naturalistic and real. But yeah, I'm, I'm curious. I think we should talk about the flashback scenes because this is really the bus ride is when we start to get a glimpse of who Joe really is. Like there's like the persona he's putting on. And then there's the flashbacks that kind of really reveal why he is this persona and why he has this like guard in front of him. Right. Yeah. Um, well, I guess my first question to you to throw right back and briefly is, do you believe what you're seeing is the truth? I do. I do. I mean, it is very interpretive that you have like the black and white sequence later on, which is like, yes, that's very much not what he's experiencing. He's not seeing the world in black and white. That's more of like a visual thing for the audience to show his state of mind. But it's a dream like, I, at that point. I think I think yeah, like that black and like white a, is, is a dream. It's like a nightmare that he's having. Yeah, exactly. To try to find Ratso. But I think the flashbacks are true. I think. Uh, doing some research into the book as well it seems pretty accurate in terms of what happens there and overall I think it helps us as the viewer kind of fuel who Joe is and helps us understand him I mean I think even at the time in 1969 and and having something as complex as this and having these flashbacks be even true and exactly what happened like that's already kind of complex in terms of how they're interwoven into the story now on top of it if you were to like question whether any of those are real I mean that becomes so complicated where I'm like I just refuse to believe that a filmmaker could like go that complicated like it doesn't seem that complicated because we're just discussing whether these happened or not but for 1969 like 40 years like 50 plus years ago like I just don't think they were trying to do something that psychological you know what I mean I think there truly are those flashbacks but what do you think yeah, I think they're real too, and it's funny you bring up you know Schlesinger and who was a closeted homosexual during this production. I think he actually met his life, his long life partner, during the production of this movie, and I think that actually helped him come out and and live an open life as a gay man. But and a lot of what this movie is is repression and pushing away your any homosexual tendencies. Like it, it's very, uh, you know, some of the the guys that. The two guys that like hire Joe as you know for sex and stuff, they they kind of like the dirtiness of it. They you know the one guy who in the movie theater, he's like, oh, don't tell my mom. And he's like, well, like, what are you gonna do to me? Like, I've been so bad and like kind of playing <laughs> into that. And that same guy who Joe actually does beat up is having like that same kind of interaction. So there's a lot of repression going on in this movie. That, that I think that that the Schlesinger was doing that intentionally. And then so and with the sequences, the dream sequences, yes, I think that they are real. And I think it's it's also kind of like Joe uh, repressing a lot of it. And and also very fascinating that from how he was raised with no male role model, his grandma, I don't know if she did something to him or if it's just like being around a grandmother who is like that sexually open. And there is one scene where she's holding a douche. I don't know if she's cleaning his ass. Like, I don't know if like that's what. That was important. Yeah, there's like, 
I think which, implications of maybe he was kind of abused by his grandma or maybe she was too open, like you said. Like, you see some of her partners, too, like, kind right. of make out with her and they're wearing cowboy hats, ironically, too. Right. So, like, that's all going on and, like, he's he watches his girlfriend get gang raped and then essentially or what you're told is that he was gang raped as well. And then yeah. he becomes this, well, I got to be a man. And, like, Annie was crazy, but I'm Joe. I'm this... Per- person i have this big persona i'm very masculine and i also sleep with men i also am okay with sleeping men it's very it's a very fluid thing which is great and it's and it's very accepting of a lot of things which is why i think this movie is so fascinating because it's it's you know propping up the idea of gender fluidity and sexuality and it's not shaming it and i think like that's the thing is it's pointing fingers at the people who do feel shamed about it and saying why like that's wrong and, and how it innately impacts Joe, who I'm not saying that Joe should be this like flamboyant, you know, gay person in your face about it, but I don't think that's who he is. But I think that he's just very open to everything. And unfortunately it's because of past experiences and what he had to deal with. So there's a lot of like very interesting stuff going on with gender fluidity, gender and sexuality, just a lot of uh, a lot of fascinating things. I'm glad you brought up the topic of sexuality because I think it's it's in really important I mean it's the central kind of theme and ideology behind this film is fi- like you know being open and honest with yourself and I think it's hard not to watch this movie and really question some things and question really who Joe Buck is and whether Joe Buck even knows that and whether the ending of the film is him accepting that or him just kind of saying I'm not going to have a costume anymore like I'm not going to pretend to be someone else I'm going to just be Joe Buck and I'm going to see like where my life takes me and I think as a viewer and someone who just wants to know things wants to like know the truth wants to know the answer to things it's hard not to just question like is Joe gay is he straight that's just like ashamed of what's happened to him in the past and and that's why if anything comes up that is regarded as gay or as as homosexual then he's very reluctant and pushes back or is he bisexual and you know i kind of asked all these questions to myself while i was watching and maybe i think there's different interpretations whether you believe certain things or not like whether you as a viewer have a different kind of interpretation than i do i think that's totally open and possible but i think i kind of came to the conclusion that just like in reality, just like with any person you meet, you're not going to immediately be like, what is your sexuality, right? You're not going to ask them. And in fact, it's almost like an offensive thing to ask. And in a way, I started to get like so meta where I was thinking that Schlesinger, being a gay man himself, is that kind of what this movie is about? Is it almost telling the viewer like, it doesn't really matter. Like as long as you're accepting who you are, if anyone's even asking that question, like that just shows who they are in a way. So I want to ask you that question specifically, whether is it even like right for us as a viewer to kind of wonder that? And in a way, I think it is because we want to know the truth. We want to know the, the actuality of this person, this character, but in a way is the film purposely not giving us this answer. Oh, of course it's not giving us this answer on purpose. And it's. I think it's totally okay. I know there's a, a woke liberal part of me and uh, people listening. It's like, oh, you can't be asking that question. Where it's, it's like, a, it's film criticism. It's storytelling. It's it's all. It's okay to ask these questions. I think and to wonder because we're being asked to wonder. I think like Schlesinger is asking us to wonder and to think about it. 
not just to take anything at surface level in this movie. This movie, at surface level, you cannot like cannot interpret it just based off of that. There's so much more to di- to dive deep into that. I think it would be almost disrespectful to the movie, the art form, to Schlesinger and the other filmmakers on the movie itself to not question it. I mean, I think that just the way that John Boyd approaches it, even the way Dustin Hoffman approaches it, there's a lot of repression and not being who you truly are. And then when you see a character that is, uh, that is out there, you know, they, they run into a, I don't know the correct terminology for this person, but certainly a gay man and a gay man who might be femme or trans and they're open out in the open. They're seem very happy with themselves and very sure of themselves. Whereas all Ratso can just say to them is call him a faggot. And that's like the, that that's the direct, I think, and I, and I think that that's what Schlesinger is doing is saying like, look at the person that's out and open, happy, sure of themselves, confident versus Ratso who is down as luck has no future prospects, lives in poverty, and is hateful about everything, is spiteful about everything. There's always a reason why I don't like this or fuck them, screw that person. You know, he he, he despises his father, which again, like uh, going back to the whole like male role model thing where Joe doesn't have one and the person that Ratso had, you know, just worked themselves to a bone and almost like became a deformed version of themselves the way he describes his father. You know, they had to put gloves on his father when he was buried because uh, he couldn't get the polish off of it or he had a hump back because he was always hunched over, you know, polishing shoes. It's a very interesting dichotomy when we, when we talk about what the characters are presenting and, and how we interpret it versus just, like, what is actually shown. Um, and, I, and I think it brings me to, like, my next point about Joe and the thing I was talking about before with the radio, which is Joe takes a lot of his inspiration from media. He is constantly consuming it, whether it's the radio that he has, watching TV, looking at billboard ads, going to the movie theaters. Uh, it's He's very impressionable. And I think like why he wants to be a cowboy is, and again, going back to the whole beginning of the movie, the blank canvas, seeing fantastical things like Westerns, is that you think that that's how you're supposed to be. Like that's And that's toxic masculinity is seeing all that and being like, well, of course I have to be a cowboy and dress like this and talk like this and act like this and do this and do that because that's what I'm being told by the media. That's what the media is telling me to do. And that's the whole thing what I'm saying about the bus with all the women. He's literally hearing women on a radio through through media how a, what the ideal man that they want, the Gary Cooper type, the movie star type, like what everybody else sees instead of just being you as a person. Yeah. I'm so glad you brought that up because – there's something so deep and personal about this film and whether you kind of see it on your first viewing or on a second viewing, you kind of see these like really personal connections. And I think it's because of Schlesinger and how close he was to this material. And I have been reading Oscar Wars, which is this wonderful book that just came out recently written by Michael Shulman, who kind of breaks down these major moments in the Academy history and talks about, you know, the battles, the people that wanted to win that didn't, the nominees that didn't get nominated, you know, and, and so forth. But I wanted to read a little bit from the chapter that was just called X, which is about kind of the change and eruption of I- I- more independent cinema and X-rated films such as Midnight Cowboy. And I think this perfectly hits on not only the scene with the person who's gay or trans or whatever they may be, but also as well as what you're describing with Ratso and Joe Buck. 
Schlesinger was intrigued when first reading Midnight Cowboy. A flamboyant body wit who kept a male lover in the attic of his home on Peel Street, he was still putting on the pretense of heterosexuality. When he brought the novel to his regular producer, the response was, quote, This is faggot stuff. This will destroy your career, end quote. But an American producer, Schlesinger knew, Jerome Hellman, thought that they could do something with this. Thought that it would be nearly impossible to finance in the days when Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf was still straining against the old production code. Hellman took the novel to United Artists, whose presidents warned him, My partners here, the older men in the company, aren't going to understand it. End quote. But the studio offered to fund it for no more than a million dollars. So I think this is a really important quote, not only because it shows Schlesinger's kind of love, he, he sees this material, he reads the book, he's really interested in wanting to make this into a film, but he also knows the challenge. And he, he's, gone, he's going right to a producer right away, and what does the producer say? This is faggot stuff. And that's his quote, not my words. But And it's so funny, that exact almost phrase is then used in the film by Ratso. When he meets that person who's transgender and talking to him, he he keeps saying, like, that's faggot stuff. Like, get out of here, faggot. He just keeps saying that F word over and over to this person. And it's almost like you have to imagine that that drew specifically, not only from his life experience, but even just trying to make this movie and make this get made. And then later on, when you have, you know, Rico basically telling him, Joe that like this cowboy stuff isn't working he's calling it bullshit he's calling it he says you look like a fag it's gay and obviously Joe Buck is fighting back and it's like you know is John Wayne gay like no and it's so funny because it's directly referencing not only our current time and then what would then be uh, you know having John Wayne later on be nominated and then spoiler win best actor this year it's also playing into these male role models the stereotypical film heroes that we're used to like John Wayne the man who you know gets the girl he always kills the bad guy and then he saves the day he's always the hero and he always gets the girl and I think that's kind of really what Joe sees in these characters it's getting women yeah absolutely and I think like that I want to talk about that scene because I just all the lines I think that's the to me that's the best scene of the entire movie I think I think it's the best acting I think it's the strongest aspect of of this movie uh, just from that one scene and sequencing so we haven't really we've like talked about Ratso uh, but Dustin Hoffman plays Ratso Rico Rizzo and the most fascinating thing about this is a year before or two years before I get well in the production time when they're making the movie he also just came off The Graduate and like Mike Nichols was begging Hoffman don't do this movie saying to him like we just we just made you a star with The Graduate you were good american boy and now you're gonna do this and dustin hoffman was like too you know yeah and hoffman was like i'm going to do this hard <laughs> i'm gonna do this movie <laughs> like you've never like it hasn't been done and i there's a lot of different accounts on the audition process of the movie. i've heard like a bunch of different things but one thing that um that i heard about the audition process is they were supposed to have oh man forget the actor right off the top of my head that they were gonna originally have for john voight and dustin hoffman did auditions with both this other actor and John Voight and they were going to go with this other actor. And then Hoffman was like, well, look at the the screen testing. What do you notice? And then the other character, they noticed Dustin Hoffman, but in the, with John Voight, they noticed John Voight more than Hoffman, which let's give a lot of credit to Dustin Hoffman, who from all accounts that I've ever heard is that he is very competitive on set. He's an actor who pushes 
and will push to get the right emotions and, and scene. And for him to say, from a competitive standpoint, I will take the back seat to this because the because the story is being served better with John Voight in that role, I think says a lot to what he was willing to bring to the movie. Um, and just the overall acting performance of this is it's so strong. I mean, this is these are two actors who are, are who are budding, you know, in their careers. And whatever you may think about John Voight with his later life stuff and his politics, him in this movie and early on his career is pretty fucking great. So you have like two actors that are like really going at it, really performing, and Dustin Hoffman gives a great uh, performance of Rico Rizzo. We all know the the famous I'm walking here thing, like getting that shot, which a, a few things with that. One, how do they get the audio? Do they have wireless mics for that, or was that all dubbed in, uh, in post? And there's also the famous like story of like, oh, that was improvised. A taxi cab might have hit him, but then you also hear that Schlesinger and other filmmakers on the set were just like, oh, no, that was, like, totally planned. It just, Hoffman was kind of caught off by surprise by it. <laughs> yeah, maybe the taxi got too close. It's it's one of those, like, does it really even matter? <laughs> like, it's an amazing no. moment in the film. I think there's a lot of examples of improv and between these two actors in particular, and I think even in that scene as well, there's some improv of kind of hitting it right and, and getting that scene on the on the nail and it's interesting too because it's not only as you describe Hoffman's very competitive off behind the scenes and, and kind of making the production but these characters are are very they're antagonists at first right like they're someone Joe is very impressionable as you said he gets kind of suckered into this man his games you know he's a better hustler than Joe Buck is he's not used to being hustled the way that he does get hustled by (laughs) Ratso and it's interesting too because he takes the $20 from him and then when he sees him a day or two days later that money's gone so even something as small as that, it's like, what did Ratso do with the money? Does he owe the money like to someone else? Did he like use it just for food? Did he splurge on something? It like makes you again ask as a viewer, what's happening here? What's the true explanation and reasoning? Uh, yeah, I think it's just he was just buying could have been drugs, basic necessities, cigarettes. I mean, yeah, cigarettes. Yeah. And <laughs> I I don't know if it's just a few days. Soup. I don't. I think it might be a, a like a week or two that passes between. It could be which because. Again, like yeah. like Joe, like coming in with like very little money, he was able to survive a little bit on his own. Except he gets kicked out of the hotel, which is how he ends up with Ratso, is because he's like, "Well, you can come stay with me in the slum," <laughs> and they start slumming <laughs> out together. Um, so, and I'm I have the I know we talked about it before I have the movie going on right now, so they just got to Ratso's place, and John, you know, Joe Buck is looking around like, "Jesus Christ, how did I end up here?" It's so gross. I know, but it's also like the dichotomy and. You know, I think we were talking about before the pod, just, you know, us recording of just like, is this movie like North versus South oriented? Like, this is definitely a moment where it has a little bit of that, like, well, it come from the South. Everything's really nice. Like, looked like where Joe was living was not like the greatest of places, but looked like he was well off and living and had like running water and working heat and electricity. Whereas this is just like, oh, my God, this is bad. Yeah. This is yeah, really it's disgusting. Yeah, hearing just, about the behind the scenes was really interesting because they talked about. I mean, this was a movie made for like under a million dollars, so it was very low budget. They probably couldn't even afford to build this big apartment set that he takes place in. So they like literally shot in New York in like an abandoned building. And I would she was hearing like uh, I forget it was a a documentary that they made all about Midnight Cowboy, probably for its like DVD release in in two thousand four. 
And they talked about how like that room in that building just smelled like human piss and feces. And like it didn't take much to even get (laughs) into character when you walked into that building because it was so disgusting. And it makes sense because it looks so good. Like no set could, you know, compare to how like nasty, grimy, like you can see the years of decay and grime built up in that department, in that apartment. It's disgusting. (laughs) It's awful. Which is like, how did that happen <laughs> you know like you watch this new york and it's you know living in new york right now walk around the city today it's just like i'm not saying it's the cleanest of places but like <laughs> how did like how does society transition so much where new york was this budding immigration hub to okay it's a full-fledged city a lot of things happening i know the depression happened so maybe some of that and the war and then all of a sudden it's just like these slums it's like really grimy part i mean for 20 years of the city's 30 years maybe the exist of the city's existence it was looked at as like a hellhole like hell literal hell on earth and they changed it up the 42nd street they're walking around is not the 42nd street of today um it's a very different world and it's a world that ratso like despite living in the slums and, and living in the city's entire life he wants to get out of there his aspirations are to be in sunshine he just wants to be and what he says there the keys to life is sunshine and coconut milk uh and that's how he's trying to survive which Maybe that's what, you know, besides obviously living in, in poverty, but he got sick like pretty quickly where Joe like wasn't getting sick. And I don't know if because Rat- it looked like Ratso wasn't eating the food that Joe was eating. Or maybe Ratso was like, oh, I, I can survive on coconut milk only. That's all I need. And so I don't know. I don't know if there, there's some of that being played into there, but this whole fascination with Florida getting down south, getting to uh, to Miami is this like goal the goal of theirs are to well we'll live there and we'll be hustlers and you know seeing dollar signs seeing a new way of life like that's what they were focused on and so now it kind of leads me into that scene that key scene that i was talking about because i i just i loved it when i was watching it last night because i watched it last night i have it all right now i I love this movie that the scene like really again stuck out to me like a sore thumb so ratso he feeds Joe and he's kind of pacing back and forth. And he's just like, I got to get out of here. Got to get out of here. Miami beach. That's where you could score. Anybody can score there. Even you in New York, no rich lady of any class at all buys the guy, that cowboy crap anymore. They're laughing at you on the street, which is your saying before Joe goes, ain't nobody laughing at me on the street. Ratso behind your back. I see him laughing at you, fella Joe. Oh, what the hell you know about women anyway? When's the last time you scored boy? So he's now calling out uh, Ratso being sexual. He's like, well, what do you know? You haven't slept with anybody, which is probably a, uh, you know, a thing about the human experience and, and, and being sexual, having that sexual connection and like putting somebody down because of that. Uh, and Ratso goes, that's a matter. I only talk about a confession. We're not talking about me now, Joe. And when's the last time you've been to confession? And Ratso goes, it's between me and my confessor. And I'll tell you another thing. Frankly, you're beginning to smell. And for a stud in New York, that's a handicap. So he's talking about physically, like, Joe, like, you may be a stud, but you, you're smelling. And, and I don't know how close you have to be to smell Joe like that. Uh, so I don't know how <laughs> intimate they were with each other. Maybe they were. Joe goes, well, don't talk to me about clean. I ain't never seen you change your underwear once the whole time I've been here in New York. And that's pretty peculiar behavior. Ratso, I don't have to do that kind of thing in public. I ain't got no need to expose myself. So there's talking about, again, the body, like what they need to do. How body can be disgusting, but 
make me use to get pleasure and, and source of money. And Joe says, no, I bet you don't. I bet you ain't ever been laid. How about that? And you're going to tell me what appeals to women. Right, so I know enough to know that great big dumb cowboy crap of yours don't appeal to nobody except every jockey on 42nd Street. That's faggot stuff. You want to call it by its name. That's strictly for fags. And this is the line of the entire scene that is hilarious when we talk about the awards. And again, like this whole like thing about cowboys' his image. Joe goes, John Wayne, you want to tell me he's a fag? And then there's just silence in the, in the scene. There's a very <laughs> long pause. And Joe goes, I like the way I look. It makes me feel good. It does. And women like me, goddammit. Hell, only one thing I've ever been good for is loving. Women go crazy for me. That's really true fact, Ratso. Hell, crazy Annie, they had to send her away. Ratso, then how come you ain't scored once the whole time you've been in New York? And Joe finishes, goes, because I need management, goddammit, because you stole $20 off of me. That's why you got to stop crapping around about Florida, and you got to get your skinny butt moving and earn $20 worth of management of which you owe me. So Joe wraps all that up by, I feel good looking like this. I feel good being me. Cowboy. I like being a hustler. I'm out there. I enjoy being sexual. And women like me. And so do men. <laughs> you know. And he's only been ever been good for his loving. So like again, like as a kid, he's probably when we're talking about like what did his grandmother do to him? What happened to him as a kid with Crazy Annie was sex. Sex was everywhere around him and he had no idea how to properly channel that. Even to the where he's making up the idea that Crazy Annie, like she like she was so crazy for me they had to send her away. Well it's like no, Crazy Annie, or Annie as we should call her, was gang raped, Joe. And maybe she was very, I don't know, mentally shocked by that whole fiasco. And I can only imagine the trauma that's involved in that. So there's a lot of, in in this, I think it must be like two minutes. And now it's playing right in front of me, this exact scene. It's so fascinating. And it, it happens so quickly. But I think the entire premise of the movie, all again, all the themes that Schlesinger is trying to go for, and Waldo, Scar- Sc- uh, Waldo Salt, the screenwriter, are trying to bring forth is repression and trying to be you and not playing to the John Wayne, I'm a cowboy thing because nobody wants that anymore. People want the new. John Wayne's out. The The Cowboys movies are done. You're here now in like this new way of living. I know I just rambled a lot right there, but I that scene to me is like the, the key moment in this movie. It is. I think it may be the only time correct me if I'm wrong, where Joe Buck even mentions Annie out loud. Uh, he only says her name like that. I don't, I don't really think he says it another time in this movie. Maybe he does like once No, you may be twice. right. I think you're right, unless it's in a flashback sequence. I don't think her name's ever mentioned. Yeah. And he says it so quickly, like almost that it's like always been on his mind. Like no matter what he's thinking, he's always thinking about Annie. He's always thinking about that night, what happened to him, what happened to her. And that we, we talked a lot about the flashback, but we didn't talk about specifically how at the end, Annie is pointing directly at Joe Buck as, like, she's getting taken away or he's getting taken away. And she, like, it's really interesting because, again, you can, as a viewer, can take this in a lot of different ways. She, like, points to him and says, like, it was him. It was only him. And what does that mean? Is that her accusing him of raping her or is it like she's so angry that he couldn't protect her that he wasn't a man enough to like fight off all of these you know macho cowboy guys is she trying to actively blame him for the one you know for doing that to her it opens a lot of different questions and but it all leads back to the same theme of joe not wanting to like look truly at himself and not truly admit who he is 
So I just thought that was really interesting, and it's not really fully explained what she meant by that. Like, I don't think Joe had to serve jail time that I'm aware of, but she seems to blatantly in front of the cops blame him and, and you know, point the finger at him directly. Yeah, I uh, I think that also might have been part of the dream sequence, so I don't know if he was taking on some of that blame within his subconscious. And again, yeah. like, these, these flashbacks are part of his inner thoughts, his subconscious, and his present conscious, um, where I don't know what, like, I believe that's all that the facts are that, yeah, that they, that she and him were gang raped, but then there's some of the aspects of it that's like, but how do we get to that point? Were you guys actually in a movie theater? Were you having sex and, and they did come onto the house? What did it happen outside on a car? Did it happen inside? Like, there's a lot of things that I think don't track well. So I don't know if like, again, like, oh, he's the only one. And maybe she did say that when she was walking away that Joe's the only one, but maybe not blaming him. And that line stuck out to him where in a nightmare and that dream he's going, it, oh, it's me. I, I, I failed her again. And what you pointed out, which perfectly, which is he wasn't man enough to stop it. Ten, he had no control. And, and that's like, I think another thing about when we're talking about these characters are control and, and what they can do. Um, you know, there's the scene in the subway where they break into the shoe polish uh, stand and Rico starts shoe polishing Joe. Then a cop comes and another person comes and it's like, well, Ratso, this is who maybe you are. Maybe you have no control. This is your destiny type of thing. There's, so there's a lot. Oh, man, there's so much. There's so much in these scenes that you can, like, extrapolate and be like, no, that's why we think he's gay. Or, no, that's why he has no control. Or, that's why he's a blank slate. There's so many, like, aspects of this movie that that is rich in subtext. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's such a weird kind of ground where you could kind of watch this film and on first glance just be like, what? There barely anything happened to that movie. Man goes to New York he lives in squalor, really, and then goes down to Florida. <laughs> yeah, I think you could summarize this entire film just as simple as that. And you're not wrong. That is kind of like the general plot points of what happens. But it is so much deeper than that when you kind of look at these subtexts of these scenes and kind of break down and, and look specifically at how these characters are kind of attacking each other. And I love looking at Ratza that way because with his fantasies and the way he kind of sees his life and his fantasies of down in Florida, living with all these older women, that Joe could be happy, you know, hustling for both of them. Ratso could live his life, eating his coconuts. You even see him running on the beach. And it wasn't even <laughs> until my second viewing where I'm like, he's fully sprinting, no limp, nothing. Like, he's just an entirely different person. And, like, that's how far gone he is. That, like, in, even in his fantasies, like, if he moves down south, if he goes to the warm light, has the coconut, is around beautiful women and beaches, it will literally cure his limp. Like, that's how far gone he is in his mind, right? Wow. I did not even pick up on that. And I, I love that, that idea that in his fantasy, he doesn't have a limp. That he's able to move around, that... That like that's the defining character about it, and how so? How interesting that he has a limp, and his father's profession was polishing feet, polishing shoes all day, like, and that his one detriment in life is his fucking foot, is that he has a, a and he's looked down upon because of it. He's been told his entire life probably, well, you're you're a cripple, you're nothing, you're this and that because of a limp. And it, wow, that I didn't even think about that, John. What, what what a way to <laughs> blow my mind right there. Didn't even think about that. 
<laughs> I didn't even think about it in relation to his dad either, which is funny because it's right there. It's oh. just sitting right there. Oh, oh Ratso is the typical I blame my father for all my problems character. That is, like, everything but also is loves his father's him, fault. You know? Idolizes him. Thinks his the world yeah. of his father. But when they go to the grave, he's like almost disgusted by it. But he puts flowers on there. But he's looking at it. He's just like, this should just be an unmarked grave. It should just say X. Like, this person doesn't even matter. And it's funny, too, because even for myself, when I go to cemeteries or I, you know, where where I am in the city, there's a lot. There are some cemeteries where you drive by again on the highway. You just see these rolling hills of people. And who knows? Maybe they went to that cemetery that I'm thinking of from the movie because it looks almost exactly like it. And all you can think of is just like, not just the bodies that are there, but just like all the people and their stories. And I think like that's, oh man, that's like another one of the beautiful things I love about this movie is Joe could have ran into anybody, but he runs into rats. So he gets involved in the counterculture, but then there's just so much other life happening around it. And there's a motif of the person. It's the guy who, I don't know if he's dead, if he's asleep, he's just laying down on the street. Everybody just walks by. The song everybody's talking, nobody's talking about this guy. Nobody, <laughs> nobody cares. Nobody cares what happened to this person. Nobody's thinking of you. And it, so the idea of like that, these this fringe aspects of society, these people who are on the outside looking in, like how like that is the focus of this movie. It's oh, I love it. I, I because because it gives a voice. It gives a voice to people who are voiceless, who so desperately want it who so desperately you know want to believe that they have a voice and oh now i'm watching ratso and and <laughs> and joe running and he's running faster than him yeah so they're, ha- they're having yeah. a great time he's like come on joe come follow me oh my <laughs> oh and and it's... that and and that scene that moment is happening he's watching joe go into that hotel and he's smiling so it's like does he want to be a hustler too in terms of like a prostitute and, and selling his body Everything's about no, the body. It's oh. interesting, dude. This I whole movie's it, about the body. It just oh, so good. I don't know if Ratto would go that far and like want to do it himself. I think he more sees it as like, oh, this could be successful. Like what Joe and I are doing could be successful, and I could be his manager, and this could take us to the place that we're so successful. We're in Florida. We're scamming all these m- women for money and for sex, and we are like living the best life because of it. And he's so lost in that fantasy. And it's interesting that you kind of described I never because I was thinking a lot about that person who's just passed out or dead on the sidewalk and and in relation. And that's so interesting that you kind of related to Ratso because I was more so relating it to Joe and Joe coming to New York and being like, I will be special. Like people will care about me if I'm in New York and especially if I'm this like cowboys in New York and he's unique, like someone's going to care about me. And then he immediately gets there and he's shown that like. You could literally be forgotten. Like you will literally be walked over <laughs> if you are in trouble. Like it's almost implying as well that like that wouldn't happen in the South. Like that that this is so new to him, and that this New York kind of like jungle that he's walking through, which is shot so amazing, so beautifully. These long lenses of him walking in huge crowds. It's so visually stunning, but it also kind of breaks his character down of seeing New York for what it is, the cog in the wheel that you kind of are and people are willing to walk right past you if you get in their way but that's so interesting to kind of break it down and look at it from Ratso's point of view and 
in a way, we were kind of discussing whether he should have been nominated for Best Actor versus Best Supporting Actor. But the more you talk about Ratza, the more it's like I'm almost seeing him as well as the main character. You know, like he's so important to Joe's character arc and he's so important to the film and what this film is about and specifically with outsiders and, you know, being the people that's forgotten in life. Yeah, I uh, I kind of want to hold back on just like my l- final thoughts on that because it's very relevant to the end of the movie, if that makes any sense. But yeah, yeah there I it is fascinating how like the perspective of like who's the main character, who's not. I still think it is Joe's story to tell. But again, yeah. like Hoffman is such a great performance. He is like a very big part of this movie. Like you know, halfway through he like it, he starts to become like a real big part of this movie. So. It's hard to like make that distinction, but one thing I want to ask you quickly is why older women? Why is older women the mm. the the motif? It's not it's not young women. Like Joe sleeps with older women. I know he's that socialite. I don't know like how old she's supposed to be. I'm gonna say like late thirties, maybe early forties. But she she looks very she looks younger. But I don't think she's supposed to be that young. And so there's this fascination, and I don't know if it's. There were again the repressed homosexuality type of thing. That's like, oh well, I can. W- older women would understand me. And that's like it has to do with Joe's grandmother, and that he was only surrounded yeah. by older women, and like that. Uh, of course, that would be part of his fantasy, but it's also part of Ratso's fantasy too. That older women, like it's all about older women. It's, I don't know what. I don't know yeah. if you picked up on that or what you feel about that. Well, I think for Joe, it's we don't really know when his mom kind of abandoned him, how old he was, but. Maybe he was young enough to remember that. Maybe he wasn't. And maybe he remembers his mom being like a young, beautiful, youthful woman and leaves him. Maybe he doesn't remember her at all. And he just kind of looks at older women as being comforting and being someone who's there for him and someone who can take care of him like his grandma did until she died. And it's so interesting that you even say that because I didn't even put this connection together. And who's the only person he like can't really perform with in terms of like sexually in this film? It's the younger, you know, hippie woman that he meets at the party. And it's like she's the only not older woman that he can just not have sex with. He like physically cannot get there until she starts to question him and his sexuality. And then that pushes him over the edge. So it is super interesting that you brought that up. Ratso, I think it's not like his interest in, in women. And he almost feels like asexual in a way. But I think more so it's that he's looking at Joe as like a ticket out, like a way out where he can use Joe's, you know, affection for older women, getting money from older women because maybe they are looking for more part like, you know, intimacy like that. And they're willing to pay for it. They're older and wealthy. And he's just looking at that as like a way out of his poverty and to get to Florida. And that's kind of how I see Ratso's kind of perspective for older women. But it's so fascinating. I didn't put that together that the only woman he can't perform with is the younger woman. Yeah, it, it certainly is. And I think let's get to the party sequence first before we get to like what she says to him. Cause that party sequence was wild. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what was going on in that. That was just like the most, you know, as someone who, who partakes in smoking marijuana, Marijuana doesn't make you do that. It makes you way more chill, and but you're not hallucinating. You're not just like, oh, oh. Well, the guy at the party said upper or downer. Well, no, right. He, t- he takes the uppers and downer uh, to help with that. But even before that, Joe was just like, oh, 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 look at all. And it's just like, okay, like, wait, I get it. It's 1969. Like, weed is like 
you know, kind of a no-no drug. You can't do it. Everyone thinks it's so bad. Yeah. Um, but it it's not. But that that whole party sequence again. It's the counterculture. It's the you know it, they have literal Andy Warhol people involved in the making of that and showing them. It's all about oh, let's use thirty-five. I'm sure you love the let's use thirty-five or maybe I think they use sixteen millimeter film uh, for that uh, sequence. And you know, let's make it look all cool and stylistic. And I, oh my god, the one. <laughs> the one moment where they're at this party and Ratso starts stealing the food and they're like, well, why are you stealing the food? <laughs> it's free. Like, it's free. And he's just like, uh, oh, and then Joe comes in. He's like, hey there, good buddy. How you doing? Puts his arm around him. <laughs> and you know the Sean talking about where he's like smiling, standing. Ratso's just like, uh-uh, uh-uh. Like, don't, like, you know? <laughs> so sweaty and gross. I know. I want to, <laughs> oh my God. I just want to like make, like get that, uh, photo printed out as like a poster and hanging in my room. It's so fucking funny. The two of them. <laughs> <laughs> it that is is such an insane sequence. I think I saw that in your notes as well. That's probably like one of the only things that you were like, yeah, the scene is probably too long. And I do agree with that. I think it is like four, three, four minutes too long of a party sequence. Like we get the point of it by the time that it's going. But they probably had so much footage. From what I heard, this they filmed this over two weeks. There was basically just like a party running overnight for two weeks. And the cameramen at a certain point were like thought they were filming like a documentary because they just were told to film the party, like not specifically film certain scenes or anything. They were just like film everything at this party and we'll use it. And that's probably why the scene's so long because probably so much footage that they're like, we have to use this shot, like this cool thing that happens at the party. Like we have to show this. And they probably got a little carried away with that in the edit. But I don't know if I'm going to complain about something like that. Like, I don't care. It's like so visually fun and it's crazy and they're playing weird psychedelic music and it's just like screams late sixties, early seventies. And it's something that I feel like we haven't really felt. I think in, in the heat of the night, we're getting like some of that like seventies grit, some of that look and it's, it's mainly down South and it has that kind of hot old kind of Southern feel to it. But now that we get like a little bit of both and we're getting like the vibrancy, the pastel colors of the 60s, it's amazing. I'm like so happy that we're in this era (laughs) and we're seeing a film that's like so progressive. Like it's astonishing. really is. Yeah, it absolutely is. And that that whole party sequence, like and just the whole movie in general, a lot of the of the sequences, like the editing done by Robertson is fantastic. It is the highlight from a technical aspect of this movie, the cinematography is great. The acting is great, but the film editing is what really ties this entire movie together. And that sequence in itself, uh, the party is, it's iconic. It, it, there's so much things that you have to balance. There's so many things going on and yeah, it goes on a little too long, but still tells a very effective story, you know? So I, I'm very impressed mm-hmm. by the editing and that party sequence and what it eventually leads to. So we have Joe and Ratso leaving the party. Joe has his new possible love interest, the young love interest that we kind of previously have talking about. And as we're leaving, we can really see Rico and Ratso, however you like to call him. I think we keep switching the name, but Ratso deserves <laughs> Rico. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop it right now. Rico, Rico is at, he's falls down the stairs, which was an insane stunt. I was not expecting in this movie, like rolls, tumbles down in almost in a comedic effect, but he's so sad and, sweaty and just disgusting that you just feel so bad for this guy and then we have joe basically kind of 
being a good friend, being a good guy, trying to comfort him, being like, anything I can get you, like, you're so sweaty. He, like, wipes off the sweat from his whole face and his brow. And in the documentary kind of about the making of Midnight Cowboy, they talked about how that is a moment that Rata had been waiting for, for maybe almost his entire life. That level of intimacy of him just, like, allowing to rest his head on Joe's chest as he you know, cleans him up a bit. Now that I'm thinking about this, this is actually before they get into the party, not after they're leaving. But it's still important for Rico's character because he's getting that level of intimacy. He's understanding what it is to really have a friend. And I think there's the debate whether he's not straight. Maybe there's just more of a friendship that he sees. And maybe it's the same with Joe. I don't think that's really that important to kind of figure out and determine. But you can see that this human connection is really important for him. The first time that he's maybe been touched by another person in years, maybe since he was a little kid himself. So there's a lot of subtext here, and it's just as simple as man's just like wiping the sweat off of him. But there's a lot of nuance and detail, this character. But I know you wanted to talk more about the Scrabble or lovemaking scene uh, back at the hotel or the <laughs> apartment of the, the woman Joe Buck takes home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... You know, the whole party sequence happens, and I, again, just to back it up, too, because what you were saying, you're absolutely right. Like, Rico getting that intimacy that he was probably craving. I don't I don't know if they're supposed to be gay together, but they definitely are supposed to be friends by the end, and that's a, and that's a great form of love. Anyway, so the, the party happens. Uh, Joe gets, uh, is going to get his $20 for the night. Uh, I guess he's splitting with Rico. And he can't perform, like you were saying before. It can't happen. And then they start playing, I think it's Scribbage they start playing, which is just another yeah. form of Scrabble. Um, and Joe, not the sharpest tool in the shed, starts, spells money like money. like M-O-N-Y, which is like, I guess, uh, another motif that he keeps say, seeing in the city, the mutual, well, mutual something of New York. It, there's another, the O stands for something else, not of, it's something else. Uh, so he thinks that's the right way to spell money. She kind of laughs at him, and then she starts saying all these other words that end in Y, and she goes, gay ends in Y, implying to him that he's gay, and he he's like, no, like, no, I am not, and, like, refuses to accept that. Um, he refuses to accept any true identity, and then that's where he's like, you know what, I'm going to show you, and they, they start going at it sexually. It's very animalistic. It's very rough. She's clawing at him. He's like sort of into it until like moments where he's like, you see his face and you're like, he's not into this. He's not into this like very rough sex. And, but he still like goes through with it. He gets his money. He's happy at the end of the day. But it's also like the, because he goes through with it, because he steps up, because he kind of grows a pair of balls for a second and he becomes not, and I don't think this is a toxic masculinity thing where he's like accepting where he's trying to show who he is sexually. Maybe it is. Maybe I'm just completely off base right there. But he's kind of conquering it. He's kind of showing like, no, like I am this person. Let me show you. Let me be me. And I don't, again, like I think he's very, I think he's just a pansexual person that just doesn't know it and has no way to describe it. Uh, for love. Yeah. It's just, yeah, he's just looking for love. Um, well, he's looking for intimacy. I don't, think he, I don't know if he's looking for and love probably... through sex. I think he's looking for like love as a connection. But I don't know about love through yeah. sex. 
No, probably not. I mean, maybe that's why he doesn't like that sort of like animalistic way that she kind of attacks him and he even talks about it later like I got all scratched up because of her like he like, kind of almost talks as if he regrets it and to me it, it almost felt similar to the way that Rico kind of attacks him and calls him like you know the cowboy, the cowboy stuff is gay and the way that Joe is so adamant to fight back like immediately raises his voice like is so defensive and it's almost like this act of sex and intimacy that he's doing with this woman is a level of defense it's like how dare you suggest that like i will show you i will prove to you that i'm not like and almost that is a way that he's tricking himself to even continue that that kind of lie and that way he's kind of lying to himself and refuses to really again show his true self and his true colors yeah so it it feels him he he kind of like turns a page he finally like is, is accepting a little bit more of himself and what then transpires is that he gets the money, he goes back, and he finds Rico in this state of just pure it, it deteriorated health. Like, he is very sick. He's like, I got to get you out of here. And that's where he picks up that one guy in the arcade and that the older man who doesn't have money and, and tells Joe, and Joe's like, no, you got to give me money. And that's when he, he starts beating the crap out of him. And we don't know what happens. And, and even in the edits for that, he's beating the crap out of the guy and Ratso's face, or Rico's face starts showing up. Shouldn't call him Ratso. Rico's face starts showing up. And I don't know if it's like, that's a symbolism of he's beating the repressed homosexuality out of him. Again, this the older man is saying, is like telling him not to do it, but is also like in a way enjoying it. There's like a part of him that is enjoying it with how he talks and Definitely. presents himself. And, steals the money he gets the money and then he buys bus tickets and they are now on the way down to florida so we're we're nearing the end of the movie and the one of the first things that even though rico is completely you know he's sick and wait before you move on yeah before yeah, you yeah. move on I, I definitely want to talk about the scene where he assaults and maybe murders that man like i, I, don't, I don't right really know well i was gonna ask that really, uh, that's what I was going to ask is like on the bus, Rico's like, well, did you, I hope you didn't kill the guy. He sees all the blood on Joe's jacket. And do you think he killed the guy? Well, I don't know, man. I would like, like to not think he did. Right. Like I would hope not like for my love of Joe as a character and my interest of like seeing him grow and be a better person. I like to think he doesn't. And that's just like my hope and, and what I would like, like to really hope is true. But it would make sense like character wise if he did actually kill him if he really is trying to like completely kill and suppress this thing inside of him but from his realization later on and throwing out the cowboy outfit i think he he didn't and he like got to the point where he was close to he was like about to maybe but kind of stops himself and doesn't i mean even in our description though it says apparently smothering him but even apparently is a, a word used in there it's almost like the description of the film doesn't even know what happens right there's no distinct answer to that question but it's super interesting because you're right it's, it's almost like this man it's it feels religious in a way where it's like punish me for what i'm trying to do like but it's also sexual still in nature where it's like yes i like deserve to be punished in a way but in the same sense it's almost like no, like, please beat me because I wish I wasn't like this. Like, I wish I didn't have these urges. I wish I didn't have to, like, pay to get you to come to my room. And the guy is, like, really nice to Joe, which makes it even more disturbing the way Joe is treating him because Joe is so angry and pissed off at himself. 
And it's interesting that Rats or he sees Rico like kind of flashing as if when he's beating this man and again it's asking us as if you are like what do we believe? Like is this Joe trying to like beat out this love he has for Rico? Is it sexual love? Is he starting to realize that he does have this connection with him and he wants it to be gone or he's realizing in that moment that he should stop and seeing Rico's face is the reason why he doesn't kill this man. That's kind of the way I would like to interpret and the way I kind of see it, especially how we continue on to the bus ride and we have, you know, them kind of reconnect and connect maybe more than they ever have. And Joe is nicer to Rico than he ever has after this moment. Cause he realizes like what he cares about in life up until this point. But you tell me, what do you think? Do you think he kills this man? No, I don't think he kills him. Um, I, I like that you, you know, point out like maybe him thinking of, of Rico in that moment is what stops him. Uh, but I don't think he kills. I don't think Joe has the capability to kill. But I think he beat the crap out of this guy. I think he like re- I, I think like really hurt him uh, to get the money. He, he didn't want to get caught doing it. So I, th- I think that he, you know, bludgeoned this guy somehow. But I don't think he killed him so much that his dentures come out. Yeah. Well. Which wasn't scripted. I actually found out it was like a weird oh, thing really? where the actor actually had dentures, and they like thought it, thought it would be more impactful if they like literally like came out of his mouth from the hit. So really disturbing. Really, just dis- the whole sequence is like even edited. It's like choppy in a way where it's like feels like they almost like removed frames from that, and it's like choppy and jittery, and it's intense. It's great editing. <laughs> great editing. Um, so yeah, as we were saying, they. On the bus, Rico asks him about the blood on his jacket, and it's ambiguous, don't really know, and they're going down to Miami. They go down to Florida, um, at, and Rico's just very sick. At one point, he pees himself. He's sweating the entire time. He, like, can't move. Joe is taking care of him. It's, like, this really true bond of friendship. Um, and then at some point, uh, Joe gets new clothes. I guess both of them new clothes. He throws away the cowboy outfit. Cowboy outfit is gone. He's, I don't know what to say. He looks like a regular good old American boy going down to Florida to enjoy yeah, some Florida sunshine. Tourist. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and he gives a speech at the end and it's beautifully shot one because it's, it's, it's intimate. It's in this bus. You can, there's like all these other people around, but they're like, focus on them. Um, and he just gets really close to Joe. And he's saying, everything we got only set us back 10 and some. Hey, you know, Ratso? Rico, I mean, I got this damn thing all figured out. When we get to Miami, what we'll do is get some sort of job, you know? Cause hell. I ain't no kind of hustler. I mean, there must be an easier way of making a living than that. Some sort of outdoors work. What do you think? Yeah, that's what I'll do. Okay, Rico? 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 Hey, Rico, Rico, and Rico's dead. Um, Joe is, you know, contemplating like what, you know, how can I figure out a new way of life, outdoors work? I don't know. Maybe he stayed on the ranch. He could have found some of that outdoors work. Maybe if you had stayed home, you probably could have found an easier way of making a living. But you went through it and you come out of it knowing, okay, this isn't for me, but there's other things I can do with my life. But then you, he loses this one connection that I think that he probably thought he was going to have forever from that point forward that he thought, Oh, he's just sick. And I have this friend now we're in this together and he loses him and he's lost everybody. 
if you really think about it, in his life, he lost, he didn't have a father around. His mother abandoned him. Grandmother died, and he didn't even know about it until he got back from the war. We got a quick snippet of that. He has. No, it looks like he really has no friend. The only friend he had was that other dishwasher in the diner that he was working on in the beginning. And even that, I don't think the guy was like his friend. I think they were friendly. Um, yeah. So sad. It's a very just like down and just like a, also a collective breath kind of ending. You're just like, oh, I can't believe I went through that. I breathe it out type of thing. And it's it's haunting, but it's also beautiful, but so sad but also so poignant and so great and impactful. I mean, I don't know how you took away from the ending. I was just like, Oh my God, I can't, I can't believe that's how it ends. Yeah, no, it took me. I actually, the first time I watched it, it was my first time ever seeing it and it ended and I was like, Whoa, whoa, whoa what? Like, what did I miss? Like, did I miss some like grand moment that, you know, some epic speech from Rico before he dies? And I'm like, Nope, he pees himself and, Literally dies soon after that, you know, and there's nothing like grand or epic. And I think it goes to show what we're used to at this point. We're used to some big, grand, epic ending that adds with like us cheering as an audience and saying, wow, like I'm going to go tell my friends to watch that. But you're right. It is sad, but it's almost uplifting in a way because Joe has gone through his arc. He's seen what Rico has kind of done for him and his personality and seen how he's pushed him to be a better person and he's gotten to this point where he is willing to accept himself and he's willing to whether you that's all rico's credit i don't really think so but to joe he, it, it is how he's made it in new york i mean where would joe be without rico in a way is like a huge question you could kind of ask yourself and i think the themes of the film and the themes of even new york city and how it's you know the city that never sleeps it's always moving it's always going it still remains even in this very end moment. And it shows us that it's not even New York. It's just kind of society. And it's like the unmarked gravestone, like you described. Having our bus driver see and, and see that Joe's friend, the person he's sitting next to, is dead. He simply doesn't say, like, we need to go to a hospital right now. He says, you know, can you shut his eyes for him? And Joe is so taken aback by him asking him, like, what? Like, he doesn't understand. And he says, close his eyes we're gonna keep going we got to get to Miami and it shows just the complete disinterest from most people that life keeps moving on I don't care about this guy like don't make everyone else uncomfortable because this, they'll see this dead guy with his eyes open in the back let's just you know make it easy for us close his eyes we'll get there we'll figure it out later you know it just again shows us that these characters and these fringe people they aren't cared about and no one's ever going to be there for them and that's, I think, why this movie is so important and why there needs to be these fringe films that kind of show us the outsiders and show us what they mean and, and what they add to the world. And I think that was just a perfect way to kind of end it for Joe. And again, to show Joe that, you know, it really is up to him to decide who he wants to be and how he's going to be himself and, and be the person that he wants to be. And I think part of that part of that is Rico. Part of that is finally accepting who he is in terms of sexuality in terms of who he is as a person and I think that's perfectly shown in this final scene and having the heartbreak of him still holding Rico like acknowledging how much this person means to him but kind of hopeful for the future in a way the bus is showing us reflections of these beautiful you know Miami palm trees and the beautiful kind of like sun shining on them and at the same time it is 
melancholy because he's dead and he's never going to be able to have that friend again. It's man, it's one of those endings that you won't probably forget. Like I'll still think about that movie years from now just because of that ending, that ending, that haunting feeling that it leaves you with, but also hopeful. Like Joe has a chance. He'll make it. He just got to stick with it. Yeah. And you kind of said it too. And I want to tie it back to that man laying on the street is no one cares that Rico died besides Joe. No one really cares. Everyone wants to gawk and look at it. You know, you want to walk by the dead body. You want to see it for a second, but you don't care about that person's story. You don't care about where that person's been, what they've done, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I think like, that's kind of like this whole movie is about like even think about and I, you know ending it here is like think about the film title the midnight cowboy somebody who passes through the night does their work you know is a free spirit maybe within the night and never seen or heard from again i think that i think that's what the film title is insinuating and and trying to describe um and it's it's down it's a down ending but it's also a very like as you said, a beautifully like haunting way to end a movie. So I think that's it. Uh, we're walking here. We're walking there. We're talking about live at Midnight Cowboy, but let's talk about the 42nd Academy Awards. And welcome to the 42nd Annual Academy Awards presentation. Tonight, for the first time, Mexico and Brazil join the United States and Canada in viewing our extravaganza live as it happens. The rest of our international audience estimated at 250 million people in 40 countries must wait a few hours to see the festivities on videotape or film. For our friends abroad, a word of explanation. You'll be seeing in the next two hours what has become a major news event, the annual recognition by American film artists and technicians of excellence in achievement during the year just past. Because we're performers and storytellers, we'll be doing our best to entertain you at the same time. And I think you're about to see the most star-studded, surprise-packed Academy show of them all. Now, here's how the voting for the awards is done. In February, Academy members voted by secret ballot for five nominees in each category. Nominating is done by specialists in each field. For example, only cinematographers may nominate cinematographers writers, writers, and so on. And then in March, our 3,172 members vote for the finalists, again by secret ballot. Academy officials do not conduct the balloting. The votes are mailed by the voters to Price Waterhouse and Company certified public accountants. They're counted and tabulated there with the final results known only to one man, the estimable Mr. Bill Miller. Most of us these days are asking ourselves and each other these questions. What is the meaning of the new freedom of the screen? Is it something to be feared? Should the screen be censored? The Academy has dispatched a man with a camera to various places to visit with some of the directors who are making the films everybody's talking about. Ladies and gentlemen, it's my pleasure to introduce America's ambassador of laughter, one of Oscar's best friends, and I mean friend in the truest sense. They've gone steady for years, but never married. He's one of the world's best loved comedians and a man of true grit. <laughs> His dressing room floor is covered with it. Here's everybody's friend, Bob Hope. I must say it's a beautiful crowd and everyone who is anyone in Hollywood is here tonight. 
I know Liz Taylor's here. I saw a Brinks truck parked outside. <laughs> but this is really a night to remember. It's such a novelty seeing actors and actresses with their clothes on. Tension. I haven't felt this much electricity since I backed into Glenn Campbell's guitar. <laughs> if you notice, we're less formal up here this year. Gregory Peck's tails didn't get back from the cleaners in time. I don't mind, but having to wear a tux was quite a jolt to Fred Astaire. He wears tails to take out the garbage. <laughs> anyway, I hope your favorite wins tonight, although I know mine won't. This will go down in history as the cinema season which proved that crime doesn't pay, but there's a fortune in adultery, incest, and homosexuality. <laughs> That's what we're honoring tonight. A sadistic king, a consumptive drifter, a male hustler, a schoolteacher dropout, and a one-eyed sheriff. <laughs> this is not an Academy Awards. It's a freak-out, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Now, some great films have been nominated. They Shoot Horses is about people who dance all night. Anne of a Thousand Days is about a king who fights with his wife all night. And Midnight Cowboy is about a Texan who manages to keep busy, too. <laughs> Anne was shot in England, Z in Algeria, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid in Mexico. The only shots in Hollywood were the ones the actors got before they left for England, Algeria, and Mexico. <laughs> Duke Wayne's been around for years, but's nominated with him as John Voight whose only motion picture experience was two years ago when he was a blood donor for a Vincent Price movie. <laughs> and I felt so sorry for Dustin Huffman in Midnight Cowboy. He looked so weary and run down like he'd started running around again with that Mrs. Robinson. <laughs> and how about some of those pictures today like without a stitch and what do you say to a naked lady? Remember when Hollywood was looking for new faces? <laughs> And action movies meant westerns. <laughs> and a movie score referred to the music. <laughs> these X-rated movies are really <laughs> I think we sail in a few minutes, folks. <laughs> these X-rated movies are really something. One theater manager told me he's been popping corn for six months and still hasn't plugged the machine in. I must say, if this trend continues, they won't have new stars putting their footprints in the cement at Grauman's Theater. <laughs> They'll have sit-ins. <laughs> Pictures. Pictures sure have changed. I hear they're doing a remake of Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm. But in this version, guess what she's growing? Today, high noon would be about a lunch hour in a junior high school. <laughs> nothing, nothing is taboo anymore. Now when a cowboy rides off into the sunset on his horse, it's just the beginning of a beautiful friendship. <laughs> the 42nd Academy Awards were held on April 7th 1970 at Dorothy Chandler Pavilion in Los Angeles, California, and the event once again had no host, but instead a deluge of guest speakers and presenters. 
This was the first Academy Award ceremony intended to be broadcast via satellite worldwide, but according to Klaus Lehmann, a foreign sales executive at ABC Television Network, in addition to Canada and Mexico, only two South American countries, Chile and Brazil, roughly in the Oscars time zone, were interested in the live coverage. An early attempt to change the Academy Awards presentation time to 1 p.m. to fit European television audiences was rejected by Ampass executives, since at the time television standard conversions were difficult for other nations. And again, I'm going to quote from the great book by Michael Shulman, Oscar Wars, which describes a little bit about where the Academy is in 1970. Over the winter, the Board of Governors finalized a radical new plan. Anyone who had not been active in the movie industry for seven years would be made an associate member without an Oscar vote, in other words, would be put out on the icebergs to die. But it had been done carefully. Secret lists were drawn up, lawyers were consulted, and as the minutes of February 19, 1970 courted, Gregory Peck, the then president of the Academy, stressed the importance of keeping this information from becoming known prematurely. The board agreed that the purge would be kept under wraps until after the 42nd Academy Awards. So here at the time, 1970, I believe in 1969, there was also the kind of talk of youthing up the Academy. The average age of Academy members was in the 70s at this point in time. So it kind of brings up the question, something that we maybe have even spoken about in recent years of the Academy. Is the Academy too old? Are there people that shouldn't be voting? And what we have here is an implementation of what they call an associate member. If you're seven years outside of the industry, not making anything, you're not in any movie, you're not participating in the production of a motion picture, then you would be classified as an associate member. Still getting most of the perks, but not the major perk of being able to vote for the Academy Awards. So I just want to kind of throw that out to you, Ben. This is like a cool little insider of Gregory Peck. And I think of the the chapter of Inside Oscar Wars really went into Gregory Peck's reign as the president and his struggle with not understanding where Hollywood was at because he came from this, you know, old school era and he wanted it to be youthful and to bring in these voices, you know, but how do you do it and how do you not do it without offending people? So overall, what do you think about these changes and how do you feel about the Academy being so old here in 1970? I I like the changes. I like the idea of like, hey, if you're not active within the community, you know, maybe other people who are active should be voting on this, should be talking about it, should be a representat- a representation of what the academy is. Having said that, I don't oh man, it's really hard to call the academy old at this point. I mean, I know it's 42 years old, but like the way that I've been looking at it is like, oh, it's still pretty young. It's still pretty new for the Academy, for Hollywood. Like, there's still so much more to explore. I mean, like, we're not even technically halfway to the point of where we are. We're almost there. We're almost at that halfway point. But we're not there just yet. So it's, like, hard to call it old for, like, that time. But I guess it was. I mean, we look at, you know, who's being honored. You know, with Cary Grant getting an honorary award, you know, they bring him out. And he's just just old silver fox. So you're just like, whoa. (laughs) Where did Carrie what happen? Yeah, what happened, Carrie? <laughs> but it's probably been uh, 15 years since he was in a relevant movie for for us to like be talking about and and recognizing. Yeah. So it can happen. Um so yeah, it's it's a I like to change. I like that you have to be involved with the industry 
to vote and be a part of this body. I think it's important, not just as the award show, you know, this group of people to demonstrate what Hollywood and what filmmaking is at the time, but it also, it prevents people from like, imagine just how different the following Academy Awards would have been. I think it also shows how impactful Midnight Cowboy was overall because this again this change didn't happen until right after the 42nd academy awards so that means the old guard the people that were mainly in their 70s for the most part a lot of them still ended up voting for midnight cowboy and it shows the strength in that film and it shows how a lot of the academy did agree and did think this was kind of pushing the boundaries of filmmaking and i think that's the perfect segue to jump in to this year's academy awards the Gene Hersholt Humanitarian Award went to George Jessel. Jessel was an American comedian, actor, writer, composer, and producer whose skill as a dinner speaker earned him the honorary title of Toastmaster General of the United States. Jessel would win the Hersholt Humanitarian Award based on his humanitarian work. Man, I would love to be the Toastmaster General of the United States. <laughs> I was <laughs> laughed. I was lost it reading Toastmaster General. <laughs> Who would you say that is nowadays? <laughs> now I'm just like, who would I want to see give a toast? I don't know. I, I think I'd be pretty happy if Snoop Dogg gave me a toast. <laughs> you heard it here, folks. Snoop yeah. Dogg is 2023's Toastmaster General of the United States. <laughs> Moving on, as Ben mentioned earlier, Cary Grant was honored with the Academy Honorary Award this year. Cary Grant was nominated a total of three times for Best Actor, and he appeared in six Best Picture nominees, but had never won an Oscar till this honorary award. The British-born American film actor who's known for his good looks, debonair style, and flair for a romantic comedy made him one of Hollywood's most popular and enduring stars. I'm, uh, I'm very grateful to the Academy's Board of Directors for this happy tribute and... Uh, to Frank for coming here especially to give it to me. And uh, well, to all the fellows who worked so hard in finding those and assembling those film clips. You know, I may never look at this without remembering the quiet patience of the, the directors who were so kind to me, who were kind enough to put up with me more than once, some of them even three or four times. There was Howard Hawks, Hitchcock, the late Lee McCary, George Stevens, George Cuco and Stanley Donut, and all the writers. There was Philip Barry, Dory Sherry, Bob Sherwood, Ben Hecht, dear Clifford Odets, Sidney Sheldon, and more recently, Stanley Shapiro and Peter Stone. Well, I trust they and all the other directors, writers, and producers, and leading women have all forgiven me what I didn't know. I, I realize it's conventional and usual to praise one's fellow workers on these occasions, but why not? Ours is a collaborative medium. We all need each other. What better opportunity is there to publicly express one's appreciation and admiration and affection for all those who contribute to, to so much to each of our welfare? I, you know, I've never been a joiner or a member of any uh, oh, particular social set, but I've been privileged to be a part of Hollywood's most glorious era. And yet, Tonight, thinking of all the empty screens that are waiting to be filled with marvelous images and ideologies, points of view, whatever, and considering all the students who are studying film techniques in the universities throughout the world, 
and the astonishing young talents that are coming up in our midst, I think there's an even more glorious era right around the corner. So before I leave you, I want to thank you very much for signifying your approval of this. I should cherish it until I die, because probably no greater honor can come to any man than the respect of his colleagues. Thank you. So long. <laughs>
So they're still relevant and doing work uh, within the last seven years. <laughs> it's insane. Best song original for a picture went to Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid, Burt Bacharach, and Hall David for Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head. Some felt that the song was a wrong tone for a Western film like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, but director George Roy Hill insisted on its inclusion. Robert Redford, one of the stars of the film, was among those who disapproved of using that song, though he later acknowledged he was wrong. When the film was released, I was highly critical. How did the song fit with the film? There was no rain at the time. It seemed like a dumb idea. How wrong was I? As it turned out to be a giant hit. You know, I think the song is great. There's a reason why it's a giant hit. It's an incredible song. Anyone can relate to it. It does not fit in this movie. It doesn't fit at all. It's really weird the way it's used. I totally still stand by. This is such a weird song choice. It doesn't fit whatsoever in this movie. I don't care if it's some cheerful bike ride and it's sunset and it's beautiful and you're, you're getting freaking Paul Newman falling in love with his best friend's girl. I don't care. <laughs> Raindrop keeps Rain falling on my head. Raindrops keep falling on my head. <laughs> yeah, let's listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> Raindrops are falling on my head And just like the guy whose feet are too big for his bed Nothing seems to fit Those raindrops are falling on my head They keep falling So I just did me some talking to the sun And I said I didn't like the way Got things done Sleeping on the job Those raindrops are falling on my head They keep falling But there's one thing That's a great song. Best score of a musical picture, original, or adaptation goes to Hello, Dolly. Adaptation scored by Lenny Hayden and Lionel Newman. This is Hayton's second career Oscar out of six nominations. He previously won for On the Town for 1949, and he's notably nominated for the score to Singing in the Rain, but did not win. This is Newman's first and only Academy Award at 11 nominations. He's the brother of Alfred Newman and Emile Newman, uncle of composers Randy Newman, David Newman, Thomas Newman, Mar- Maria Newman, and grandfather of Joey Newman, and his 11 nominations contribute to the Newmans being the most nominated Academy Award extended family with a collected 92 nominations across the various music categories. Man, I want to be a Newman. What the heck? <laughs> Newman. <laughs> no, not that Newman. Are you kidding me? Oh, okay, sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> Best original score for a motion picture and not a musical went to Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid from Burt Bacharach. This is Bacharach's second Academy Award of the evening as he previously just won for Best Song, and he would go on to win Best Song again for Arthur's Theme from Arthur from 1981. Best short subject cartoon went to It's Tough to Be a Bird to Ward Kimball. Best live action short subject went to The Magic Machines from Joan Keller Stern. Best documentary short subject went to Czechoslovakia 1968 to Denise Sanders and Robert M. Fresco. Best documentary feature went to Arthur Rubinstein for The Love of Life. Best screenplay, best of material from another medium went to Midnight Cowboy, Waldo's Salt, based on the novel by James Leo Hurley. 
So this is Salt's first Oscar nomination and win, and Salt would later be nominated in 1974 to Serpico and would later win again in 1979 for Coming Home. Salt once praised independent films by saying, when an independent film is made that breaks ground, whether in technique or content, it opens up a new field and subject matter. Whereas commercial films are made in pursuit of money, independent film is developed out of a need or passion. And about six months before he died, Waldo Salt received the highest honor bestowed by the Writers Guild, the Laurel Award for Screen Achievement. And one thing we didn't put here, but just from knowing all this, is uh, Salt was on that Hollywood blacklist during the uh, House Un-American Committee bullshit that was going on trying to find communists. He was named and he was blacklisted for many years, but he came back roaring and got this win, which is well-deserved. Best story and screenplay based on material not previously published or produced went to William Goldman for Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. This is Goldman's first Oscar nomination and win, but he would later win in 1977 for All the President's Men. Butch Cassidy, a revisionist Western that helped popularize the buddy movie, announced Goldman as a screenwriter able to balance big laughs with a sense of adventure, while All the President's Men cemented his status as a deft writer of suspense. The two are considered to be among the finest screenplays ever written and exemplify Goldman's range and versatility. Like I was kind of hinting at earlier, I think it's so true. Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid, I feel like, has kind of cemented and carried on that type of, you know, witty dialogue, that kind of back and forth between characters. And I think it's even continued on into what we see today with something like the MCU. I think that kind of dialogue, that witty, snappy, everything's tongue in cheek, everything is like poking fun at each other. Everything, you know, it's like something can be so serious and then immediately undercut with a joke, you know, and it's usually a joke at another character's expense, you know, poking fun at them or complaining about something they did. And I think that's very modern for what we kind of see today and what we enjoy, especially in, in a lot of our buddy cop and superhero movies. Best Supporting Actress went to Goldie Hawn for Cactus Flower as Tony Simmons. This is Hawn's first Oscar nomination and win but she would be nominated for Private Benjamin in 1981. The enduring star power of Goldie Hawn is a fairly unusual phenomenon for a contemporary Hollywood actress. She first gained celebrity through a brief stint as a, quote, dumb blonde dance comedian on TV in the late 1960s and segued to the movies as an acclaimed supporting player before quickly achieving star status. After winning the Oscar, Hawn had her pick of movie roles. That meant working with absolute genius Steven Spielberg in his first feature, the 1974 crime drama, The Sugarland Express. John, I know you wanted to talk a little bit about Best Supporting Actress here. I can give some more quotes from Oscar Wars. Take it away. Thank you, Ben. I'm quoting from page 230, which kind of dives in a little bit into Brenda Vaccaro. And if you don't know who she is, she's the actress in Midnight Cowboy who plays the kind of hippie girl, the kind of new 70s girl that he meets at the party that he then kind of plays scribble or scrabble whatever you called it at her apartment and then she calls him gay and they have weird animalistic sex but here's the quote the studio machinery though creaky and had scarcely ground to a halt before the nominations three men in suits took midnight cowboys Brenda vaccaro to lunch at the beverly hills hotel they said quote give us three thousand dollars and we'll get you the nomination end quote she recalls i said quote what I have to pay you, end quote. Stupidly, I turned away from it. I should have just given them the three grand. 
Universal held 35 special screenings of Anne of the A Thousand Days, preceded by cocktails with beef stroganoff and assorted French pastries and followed by midnight champagne suppers. Fox hosted lavish buffets for Hello Dolly with an open bar and prime rib au jus. One industry insider predicted a sweet for Hello Dolly out of a save the town sentiment. So I think this shows where we are in Hollywood and where we are with the Academy Awards and how it really is pay to get nominated. It's not pay to win, per se. I think you may be able to argue that case as well, but there is a direct evidence here, direct quote that people are being asked directly, you know, give us the money, you'll make it on that list. And they, they know it, like, just like she said, she should have been given the money because it carries a lot of weight. Even being nominated is very significant for people's careers and can go on and help their career five, 10 years, maybe on just for saying Oscar nominated. So I just wanted to mention that one, because I no way do I think her performance is worthy of a best supporting actress. Like there's just no way she's barely in the movie. really not that impactful. There's not really anything that substance of substance and that interesting, but also that it's just so clear as day that there's just, it's a pay to win system just to be nominated in the Academy Awards. So I wanted to call that out here. Yeah, and even just the idea that like Sylvia Ma- Sylvia Miles gets nominated for the movie playing Cass, and she's only in one scene. It's at the way beginning, and I would say Brendan Vaccaro's seeing the movie was way more impactful. Honestly, yeah. so it's very interesting, and it yeah, I mean, this past Oscars, the ninety fifth Academy Awards, was definitely all about how are you getting nominated? Who like who are you? There's all the nepo baby talk. I mean, I know you love Jamie Lee Curtis. I'm not trying to poo poo her. Don't you say it. But she did not deserve to win. And she only got it <laughs> because of her social media presence and how people are responding to her. But then there's the whole Andrew Riseborough thing her getting nominated. Her friends were helping her to get it. But she didn't win. Jamie Lee Curtis, though. Nepo baby. Moving on to Best Supporting Actor went to Gig Young for They Shoot Horses, Don't They? as Rocky. Now, this is... A weird topic. I don't think we've really seen anything like this on the show unless we've kind of skipped over it or missed out on it. But Gig Young, we're not going to go too deep into him and his career. Uh, He's kind of later on involved, only eight years later, in like a murder-suicide with his then-wife. So instead of going into those weird, dark details, I wanted to talk about what's related to the Oscars and specifically his Oscar and what was so interesting about what happens when someone dies, who does the Oscar go to? So Young's will, after he passed, which covered a whole overall $200,000 estate, left his Academy Award to his agent, Martin Baum, and Baum's wife. Young's daughter, Jennifer, launched a campaign in the early 1990s to get the award back from his agent and struck an arrangement that she would get the award back upon the agent's death, which occurred in 2010. So just insane on so many levels, without going into that dark kind of event that happened eight years later it's just fascinating to see that one an actor would give instead to their family their friends their lover their wife their significant other whatever it is give it to your agent I guess you're really believing in the power of how they got you there how they got you the jobs but then also the weird messiness of your family trying to get it back and I just thought that was a lot more interesting than him as a person but uh, yeah any thoughts you have been on that it's a weird story yeah, John, when I get my Academy Award, and then when I die, eventually, I'm going to leave it to you. And then when you die, you're going to give it back to my children. Okay? 
want you to promise me I can that. arrange that. Okay. I can arrange that. Okay. <laughs> I did watch don't They Shoot Horses, uh, Don't They, for this podcast. And I didn't really love the movie overall, but it's a very interesting movie. I'll say that. It feels like a... Wait, s- wait. What? Uh, what? I'm never going to... S- I'm never going to see this movie. So please tell me why the hell is it called? They shoot horses. Don't they? Okay. You're that has elevator pitched. (laughs) I don't even know how to give an elevator. pitch. (laughs) The elevator pitch for this movie is okay. We're going to take a bunch of poor people that was happening during the depression and make them dance for as long as they can. What? Yep. Is it a musical? No, the premise, the, what happens (laughs) in this movie is they get it. I guess it's a social experiment or, I don't even know what to really describe it as, but it's during the, the Great Depression. All these couples are, are I guess, partners. Uh, people are, are going to this big dance hall, and they have promised fifteen hundred dollars in silver, and silver dollars, if if they last through this whole like marathon, is to keep dancing. This goes on for weeks on end, and like people die. They have people like running these like yeah. races. And they and Gig Young playing Rocky, he is wild. It's a, it's a very like crazy performance, but I didn't love it. Um, and the end of the movie is like this: these two people they end up leaving the event, and then one of them kills the other. And then at the end, he's like, "But they shoot horses, don't they?" <laughs> that's the that that that's the movie. But who is he referring to? Well, he's talking about like, "Hey, we shoot horses to put them down out of their misery," which is kind of like, "Should we put people down out of?" Oh, their- like. Yeah. An explanation of yeah. why he murdered someone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> the, the the movie is. I did it, not expect that to make me want to watch the movie, but I want to see this so bad. It, now. It's on YouTube. The entire movie is on YouTube. Like someone <laughs> uploaded it. That's how I watch it. It's actually really good quality. I gotta say, for a YouTube video, like wow. it, the whole thing's there. Um, so I don't know. Anyways, that's interesting. <laughs> is it? Wait, wait. I have uh, one more question. Okay, one okay, more okay, okay, okay. It won't take long. <laughs> so, is this competition? Is it like um, you know, rich versus poor kind of thing, where it's like run by a big organization to win something? And I, it's like I don't know if it's using these people. I don't know if it's a big organization that's behind it, but there are like people who watch. They they have, like people come and watch, and people try and sponsor the dancers on the floor. Interesting. Yeah. Maybe you'll be into it. I don't know. It's, it's pretty wacky. It it. I had higher hopes for it when I was like kind of like looking into it. I was like, oh, this might be cool. But I think it went to the like where Minute Cowboy is like the happy medium extreme of talking about something. This went to the extreme that was just like, oh, uh, no, that didn't really work. <laughs> it's the first Squid Games is what you're describing. It was very Squid Games-esque. <laughs> Best Actress went to Maggie Smith for the prime of Miss Jean Brody as Jean Brody. This is Smith's second nomination as she was previously nominated for Best Supporting Actress for Othello in 1966. And Maggie Smith would go on to be nominated a total of six times and would later win Best Supporting Actress in 1979. One of the most revered actresses on both sides of the Atlantic, Maggie Smith created a gallery of indelible characters on stage and screen which ran the gamut from repressed spinsters to comical eccentrics. And Smith quickly became an actress of note with performances in several Shakespeare plays before making an auspicious feature debut in Nowhere to Go in 1959 before stealing the show in the VIPs in 63 and getting international acclaim for Oscar-winning performance from this film, The Prime of Miss Jean Brody. And you also may know her very well as Professor McGonagall. Best actor went to 
John Wayne for True Grit as Roster Cog as Rooster Cogburn. This is Wayne's third and final Oscar nomination, but his first win. And to honor not only this film and this amazing performance, I wanted to read a little quote from Roger Ebert on his review of True Grit. The night I saw a sneak preview, the audience laughed and even applauded. This was the essence of Wayne, the distillation. This was the moment when you finally realized how much Wayne had come to mean to you. I have on occasion disliked his movies, most particularly The Green Berets, but Wayne has a way of surmounting even bad movies, and in 40 years he has also made a great many good ones. In the early ones, like A Quiet Man or The Long Voyage Home, he was simply an actor or simply a star. But long before many of us were born, John Ford began to sculpture the actor and the star into the presence. Today there is no actor in movies who is more an archetype. Wayne, in fact, towers over this special movie. He is not playing the same Western role he's always played. Instead, he can play Rooster because of all the Western roles he has played. He brings an ease and authority to the character. He never reaches. He never falters. It's all there. A quiet confidence that grows out of 40 years of acting. God loves the old prose. So not only is this so significant, because it is almost the end of Wayne's really huge, epically long career. So many significant films, notable Western films, of course, but even beyond that into romance and drama. And here we have such a huge spanning career, but it also kind of represents the death of Westerns. It represents the death of old Hollywood and old actors and old leading stars in a way. And then here comes John Voight, Dustin Hoffman, these kind of more normal characters, these characters that are fragile and kind of afraid of who they are and afraid of showing the world who they are. And I feel like John Wayne has always been the opposite. I am exactly who you see. I am the iron board that's in front of you who's willing to kill whoever it is to save the girl, to save the young, you know, innocent victim. And I love True Grit, both the original Coen Brothers remake, fantastic westerns, one of my favorite John Wayne performances and one of my favorite John Wayne films. It is truly masterpiece, hands down, for sure. And I really love Wayne's performance. And it, it, I think it is really true the way Eber kind of breaks it down and, and looks at it as this shows the years and the, the age and time that he kind of put into filmmaking and to put into westerns. And we know that going into it as viewers. And I think it really shows. But we also have, you know, John Voight nominated here for Joe Buck. And we have Dustin Hoffman here as Enrico Ratto Rizzo. So, Ben, thoughts on Wayne... And then thoughts on Voight and Hoffman both being nominated here for Best Actor. John Wayne? You're telling me he's a... Well, I'm not going to say it now because... <laughs> I, I... You know, I love... I love Westerns, cowboy movies, John Wayne. There's there's a lot to talk about him, but he's a great actor. He really is and uh, an icon of a certain era and should have won for The Searchers. We're going to go all the way back to when... You know, when he really should have won, that was in 1956. Yul won that year for uh, The King and I. The Searchers wasn't even nominated, fucking around the world in 80 days, blah, blah, blah. We talked about that. You know, that, this is a, you know, uh, True Grit's a great performance. It's a great movie. I just, I have such a hard time. I really have such a hard time with the whole, one with that fact that Voight and Hoffman are both in this category. What are you doing? Like, come on. We couldn't separate them. <laughs> 
You couldn't separate them. Even if you wanted to say, oh, well, Rico's the true lead in this movie. I don't care. One of them should have been walking away with an Oscar this night. In fact, both should have been. So, yeah, this is kind of... This is definitely the, like, oh, we love John Wayne. We want to give it to him. And, like, as much as we love him in that cowboy, we're not going to let that... You know, I wonder... I, I bet you, I bet you, John, that... John Wayne, when he heard that line in that movie and when he was campaigning and stuff behind the scenes and kissing asses and shaking babies, that uh, <laughs> that he was like, I'm not a fag. I'm the true American man. I'm John Wayne. You should vote for me. You know, type like he was totally campaigning well, using that. Oh, you have Well, it? Ben, let me tell you. Oh, let please. me tell you. Lay it on me. <laughs> After this year's Academy Award in Playboy magazine, he would go on and later say, quote, wouldn't you say that the wonderful love of these two men in Midnight Cowboy, a story about two fags, qualifies as a perverse movie? So he immediately, it shows so clearly, he hates this movie. He hates that they oh, reference his fuck. name. He hates <laughs> he hates that it even is called Midnight Cowboy and, and bringing the name of Cowboys down, you know? So I get it, you know, I get it. Him outside of Hollywood, outside of his career, not known to be a very nice person. There was even signs of people holding John Wayne as racist outside of this year's Academy Award as he was coming in to win Best Actor. And most people knew he was going to win before this award even came up that night. Yeah, because he campaigned. He was older. Everyone loved it. You know, blah, blah, blah. I mean, he sounds like Sam Elliott last year at The Power of the Dog where he's like, those cowboys weren't gay and doing stuff. Like, blah, 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 blah. It's like, Jesus Christ, shut up. And just so, like, like get out of here. And, and I don't know. Whatever it happened is what it is. Voight and Hoffman win their Oscars, and you know Hoffman wins two. Blah blah blah. blah and Voight's not a great guy now, but yeah, should should have been there. But it probably comes down to Hoffman should have been nominated for best supporting actor, right? Yeah, I mean, he's got the less less time. He definitely would have won over Young. I mean, we just established he's not that big of a star or big of like you know personality in Hollywood. So I think Hoffman coming off. The success from The Graduate, how much people love this movie. It wins Best Picture, too. Like, I think he would have been a lock if it was Best Supporting Actor. Yeah, so it's a real shame, but uh, everyone gets their Oscars at some point, and it's just, very, it's, it's just really interesting that that line in that movie comes out and the same year that John Wayne has the pinnacle of his career, I guess, is what it is, is True Grit because he wins the Oscar, and but that's neither here nor there. But moving on to Best Director... That one went to John Schlesinger for Midnight Cowboy. Schlesinger was not on the premises to accept his award as he was out shooting his next picture, Bloody Sunday. So John Voight accepted on his on his behalf. I uh, watched that video too of Voight accepting it. He seemed like so nervous of uh, like accepting it too. Yeah. So it's very interesting. And then I don't know if you watched the video of the director. They they got they put like a six minute video together of these famous directors it, and from right off the top of my head it was Schlesinger was in it uh, Lean was in it uh, I think they had Akira Kurosawa they had Ingmar Bergman who was barely in that little clip they only had him for like one moment so I wonder if he said something crazy that uh, they were like oh we can't put this in uh, Fellini was a part of it and Billy Wilder was also of it in it so I think that was the six directors that they used oh and, and, and Mike Nichols Mike Nichols is a part of it so if I give all that, I mean, David Lean being like, being like, I can't believe I'm even like talking to these fools who are just God. <laughs> but <laughs> it, it was very fascinating to hear them all talking, to have Schlesinger there as a part of it. 
when he hasn't really been around for that long. Um, so it it's very fascinating. But uh, John, there's another Oscar Wars quote from here. I'll let you read it um, since you know the work best. But Schlesinger totally deserved this award. Just just saying. Again, this came from Michael Shulman from Oscar Wars on page 246 to be exact. On the last day of shooting, Voight found Schlesinger alone by a camper, looking like he was having a stroke. What will they say about this? He told Vaught in a panic. A dishwasher goes to New York to screw older women? What will they think of us? What have we done? Voight, who could fake confidence as well as his character, grabbed the director by his shoulders and told him, John, we'll live the rest of our artistic lives in the shadow of this great masterpiece. So it's a little like a fluff piece that Voight had to say in the moment. And I think it also shows that when you make a film and especially as a director, like while you're the center core, you're supposed to be the one who has the overall vision, you and the producer to kind of guide everyone through. You're so lost. Like, I don't think any director, even the famous Tarantino's Spielberg's, you know, the Scorsese's, the Kurosawa's like they've all been to a point where they probably put their hands on their head and went, what is happening? Like, I'm so lost of all the things we've done. And I even think about in this specific film, Midnight Cowboy, like even when Joe is thinking about Rico and think about how much he wants to find him in New York City and hunt him down and it's all in black and white. Like, think of how many different scenes they even shot. There's no dialogue involved, but it's like it's 10 or 15 different scenes all in what takes place over maybe like a minute of screen time. Just like trying to break something as simple as that, which has no dialogue, which has no like actual blocking. It's very naturalistic. is super complex and it's all trying to like tell an overall arcing story. And I just thought this was such a interesting quote because it showed not only their connection, but these two really trusted in each other a lot. Voight had not been in many films. This is really his first real acting job in a feature. And, you know, Schlesinger had to really lean into it and trust him. And Voight talked a lot about how he was, you know, he was taken very seriously and nothing was really a joke when it came to him and his performance because he was the shoulder of the film. Without Joe Buck working, the whole film just falls apart. And finally, the best picture, Midnight Cowboy, produced by Jerome Hellman. One year after Oliver became the only G-rated film to win Best Picture, Midnight Cowboy became the first and only X-rated film to win, though its rating was changed in 1971 to an R rating after the MPAA revised its rating criteria. Only one X-rated film has been nominated for Best Picture since, Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange from 1971, which was also subsequently downgraded to an R rating, though this was the result of cuts to the original film. So, Ben, what else is there to say about Midnight Cowboy? Not too much. So let's jump into some stats and figures uh, pertaining to the movie. So the movie has an 88% rating on Rotten Tomatoes with an average rating of 8.41. The top critics percentage give it an 89 with an average rating of 8.1. The audience score is an 88% with an average rating of 4.15 out of 5. IMDb is 7.8. Metacritic's is 79 and I walked away with three Oscars out of seven total nominations. So, John, what did you rate Midnight Cowboy? That's a great, great, great question. Uh, this was hard, man. I, it's been a long time since it's been a really struggle 
to figure out a rating for this movie and I kept kept going and it was going down and then I put it back up and I was really struggling to kind of land where it was because it took me a couple of viewings to kind of get the full picture of who Joe Buck is and how much are we supposed to really know Joe Buck and where we're supposed to really follow him on this journey and I kind of settled at a 95 and I think we really have to we praise the film I mean the only negative thing we really even talked about was the party sequence being too long and and that's about it I think for me personally as a viewer I think I just wanted a little bit more of Joe and maybe that meant like a little bit more of the ending I think we get a really solid foundation of like where he's going from here he talks about not being a hustler he he shows we see him actually throwing away his cowboy clothes and we see Rico dying all these are very major events but I wish we just got like a little bit more like maybe even just a little bit more of a hope for Joe Buck at the end. Love the ending. It's really amazing. I just I feel like I wish I knew a little bit more about him by the end of it. But I think that's also kind of the intention that Schlesinger was doing. And he was trying to push that kind of ambiguity. And and maybe that's because Joe's sexuality is ambiguous. And it's kind of he fluid and he doesn't really understand himself. So Ben, all that being said, I will say that that ties actually for my third highest ranking of all time tied with the best years of our lives from 1946 and then you have the bridge on the river Kwai from 1957 at a 97 and of course my one and only 100 the apartment from 1960 but ben tell me what did you rate midnight cowboy well i have said before that i have four movies that are not that are rated 100 on my list this is not one of them though this is one of five though that got a 99 and to me, the one thing that I take off for is just that party scene. As quick as this movie is, as fast-paced as it is, that's like that one part where I'm just like, all right, party scene could end right now. I could definitely end. I don't know. I guess that's just like the one little nitpick I have for it, so I can't call it perfect. It's a 99 for me. This movie is... That's psychotic. I, I don't care what you have to say, okay? <laughs> M- Mr. I'm going to give 100s out before Ben does. I don't want to hear it, Okay. I don't want to hear it from you. <laughs> this movie, I mean, I honestly, I probably should just give this movie a 100 because I love it so much. I think it's pretty much you a perfect. Should. Are you going to pressure me to do this? I've been holding <laughs> I, like the, this, the sat person in me is like, no, 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 no. You can't, you can't do, you can't do more than, than four, Ben. You can't, you can't do it. I'm like a crackhead about this. Um, I'm going to leave it at 99. It's a, it oh, is. I'm going to leave. I'm going to leave it. I'm going to leave it. Lower to a ninety-eight. <laughs> Fuck you! I'm doing a hundred. Fuck you! No, 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 <laughs> yes, no, no, let's no, go. no. If if you're gonna tell me that no, no, make it make it a ninety-eight to no, 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 no. Then you know what? I'm ramping it up. It's a hundred. This movie's a hundred. Hell yeah! This movie's perfect Hell to yes. me. This movie is like the 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 direct line of new age cinema of cinema that pushes shit to the limits. That's counterculture. That is a big F you to so many things in Hollywood and so much in the world. It is a movie of liberation, of, uh, of freedom, uh, of personal uh, sacrifice, of, of human connection, of living on the fringes of society, of finding yourself. Of d- uh, it does every single fucking thing right. This movie is, is pretty much perfect to me. I think that this movie should be watched by many, should be, under, should be looked at and studied at film schools. I don't know why this movie is was never brought to like uh, our attention. 
at school as a as a means to talk about so many different things. It's not just a movie for filmmakers to study. It's a it's a movie that 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 people who study literature and the English language should look at this movie. Should should look at the screenplay and take so much out of it. There's so much nuance and so much so much subtext. So just so much little details that you wouldn't get just from casually watching. You really have to be involved in this movie, and I care so much. So I love this movie a lot. Uh, so I'm breaking all the rules right now. This movie, it's a 100. It deserves to be there. It deserves to be recognized. It deserves all the accolades and more. Um, I think it's ridiculous looking at Rotten Tomatoes and looking at other people's ratings and being lower. You're not seeing what I'm seeing, so fine. I don't need to have your preference. Our <laughs> opinions are our own opinions. This movie is, is as perfect as it can get. I was floored the first time I watched it when I first watched this three years ago. Now we're we're on three years. It's, it's we're in March of 2023. March of 2020, the pandemic happened. I started watching all these movies and Midnight Cowboy. It, I, the whole day, I remember. I literally remember. I watched it early in the day, sitting on the front porch, just like I what Rico died <laughs> I, I was dumbfounded and just like thought about it so much and one of the other things and like I really like don't talk about it too much like with you know these movies and watch them is I, I would like write down like a quick little blurb about it just to, like get some thoughts out and like as an exercise this is the first movie where it was a true like movie review that I gave it where like I really expanded wow. upon it and like and thought about it and, and gave it more than just like Oh, I thought this was nice and like this worked for me. This no, I was like no, this is exactly what I've been looking for. This touches on on so many different aspects of society and and culture and counterculture. What again, like everything word I've said, um, I love this movie. So, is there I, anything from that review that you look back on and you either feel different on or you're like, wow, I was right about that, and I still feel that way even more so. Uh, I wrote. Why did uh, John Wayne win? They both lost to John Wayne and True Grit. Really? <laughs> um, there's a lot of stuff. Just uh, again, I'm talking about toxic masculinity, sexual identity, trauma, depression. Like everything that like Joe is trying to repress is exactly what this movie is trying to say. Don't repress it. You're a human. This is what you deal with. This is you know how we get through it. It's uh, there. Yeah. So I pretty much agree with everything that I am reading. You know, I wrote sex work in 1969 was not widely accepted as 2020. Still not widely accepted three years later in 2023. Yeah. Um, so which is why, again, for 1969, well, for a movie about a male prostitute to win Best Picture is as ridiculous as a movie featuring butt plugs in the multiverse to win Best Picture. Yeah, no, I, I love that you bring that up because I feel like almost we're at a point in time where it feels so similar to this film. Right it's with last similar. year, everything everywhere, all at once, winning. It it's not like you know we're a past we're past independent filmmaking. You know, United Artists wasn't really an independent company when they made Midnight Cowboy, but they were a much smaller company compared to the Warner Brothers, the Disney's, the Paramount Pictures, and they had a very small budget compared to most films. You know, especially when you compare this to True Grit, it was a huge budget, big action film, bunch of you know action scenes, but we're at a point now where we're beyond indie filmmaking and we're at a new part where we've grown up with the digital age. And it's like a lot of people don't go to film school. They learned from the internet and that's taken them to learn new tools, to learn things, to eventually making music videos, to making feature films and then winning best picture. It's like we've emerged into this new specific zone of anyone can do it. 
And it's not just about you have to go through film school, you have to go through the studio system, you have to start as an agent, an assistant, work your way up. You can come out of nowhere and just make the best picture of the year. And not only that, you can be the director, you can be the writer, you know, and win everything. And I think it kind of goes for this film as well. It's such a big change of, of the industry and the academy is changing and the academy feels so much younger now than it did previously. And I love that you brought up this film not being shown because we both went to film school. And I went I went uh, into a specific class later on that was called like American Film Studies. And it basically took us through the entire lineage of film history in the United States in particular. And when we got to nineteen late 1960s, we usually broke up each decade by like five or eight years and then talked about the kind of difference of film and advancements. And instead of talking about Midnight Cowboy, we talked about Easy Rider, which also came out in 1969. Really popular, successful film, you know, that went on and changed film history as well. And I think, I don't know if you agree with this, but I think Easy Rider is still more talked about than Midnight Cowboy is. Just being about this overall representation of America and what it was like in the late 60s to smoke dope and ride bikes and experience this whole you know country and how different it is across the whole country. But I don't think we need that. And it's a fun look back and to see what it used to be. And I think you can do that with Midnight Cowboy in regards to New York City and seeing what it, you know, what it used to look like 50 plus years ago. But what this really is, is a really strong character study that breaks down really complicated feelings, emotions, and does it in a way that anyone can understand and digest this, male or female, it doesn't matter. I think you can get a lot out of Midnight Cowboy. And it's a film that I think should be taught and used as education because we're especially in a weird point for male masculinity. I think there's a lot of people online that like are confused about what a man me- like means, and especially American men, where as such American-driven society, we've now finally like stepped off of women's throat and allowed them to have more opportunity, which has then led to them making more money and being more independent and not relying on men to just you know be the, the main source of income. And I think this has left a lot of men in this country feeling fragile and having less ego. And I think you could go down the road of Joe Buck and put a character on, try to pretend like you're someone else. And I think it would take a person out there to view this that is kind of down that wrong path. And I think just watching a movie from 1969 could honestly change your thoughts and feelings about like how you represent yourself, how you talk to others, how you are to other people. And yeah, I just think you should watch Midnight Cowboy <laughs> after that rant. <laughs> Let, let's ask that question, John. Is Midnight Cowboy worthy of the Best Picture Award of 1969? I'll give you three seconds to answer this or I'm writing the podcast in three, two, one. <laughs> John? Yes, yes, yes. Okay, there we go. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. I forgot we even asked that question on this podcast because I just had to go into the movie so much. Yeah, it, it's yeah. The questions are relevant because, yeah, it's worthy. It. It's the one of the worthiest to win. Uh, it's pretty incredible. I, you know, we you know bring up the everything everywhere all at once thing to kind of wrap this all up. That movie held such recognition and and notoriety and and fame for a whole year. It was released in March of 2022, one in 2023. This movie was released in May of '69 and would go on to win the following year. So it, again, this movie held the attention of so many people. That even though that John Wayne's True Grit comes out and, uh, you know, gets everyone's attention for best actor and they think he's the real cowboy, it's about, no, Midnight Cowboy, that's the true 
cowboy movie of 1969. So worthy, deserved it all. Um, any final thoughts on uh, on Midnight Cowboy, John? Yeah, the only thing we didn't say is that this is really technically the first best picture so far to show nudity to this degree. Male butts, female butts, breasts. We get it all here, folks. We do. And we're going to get a lot more in our next one, Patton. <laughs> I'm walking here. Yeah, I'm walking here. I'm walking here. John, thanks for talking Midnight Cowboy and indulging me and forcing me to make it a 100. I am living a new life as a 5-100 rated man. So, Remember, it takes coconuts and sunshine. <laughs> That's all you need in life. Oh, man. You're the true Rico to my Joe Buck. Or am I the Rico to your Joe Buck? Anyways, thanks for listening to Worthy. (laughs) I'm Ben. And I'm John. And And this this is Worthy. Everybody's talking at me. I don't hear words saying. Only the echoes of my mind People stopping still I can't see their faces Only the shadows of their eyes I'm going while the sun keeps shining Through the pouring rain Going well, the weather suits my clothes Banking off of the northeast winds Sailing on summer breeze And skipping over the ocean like a stone Thanks for listening to Worthy the breakdown of every Best Picture winner from past to present. You can listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out on Instagram at Worthy Podcast, on Twitter at Worthy Pod, and on Facebook at Worthy Podcast. Any inquiries can be submitted to worthysubmissions at gmail.com. Again, that's worthysubmissions at gmail.com.